I'm a wild wook that likes to test the limits of my consciousness and experiment to an almost deadly degree. Some describe me as a walking, talking narcotic. The DMT entities have told me drugs took my soul. Drugs have always been my biggest fascination in life, and I've done them all. In combinations from 2 to 10 substances at once, and heroic dosing almost everything. This is just to give context to the report, I'm not bragging by any means. So this is the story of when I ate a half an ounce of ultra-potent penis envy mushrooms without a trip sitter and walked to the park. I had bought these from a friend back when I was a little drug noob and had no idea what penis envies were. I thought shrooms were shrooms and I was a dirty little slut for visuals and spiritual experiences, so I wanted to eat all of $130 worth of the substance. I planned to go to this park that had a small wooded area where nobody ever went and thought I would intensely immerse myself into mother nature for this trip. It would be broad daylight outside. I go there around 2pm when kids were getting off of school. This comes into play later. I wake up and pop six of my mom's butalbital, a barbiturate to treat migraines. I'm unsure as to whether or not it had any effect on the trip, cause the dose of the very powerful mushrooms was so drastic it probably overpowered everything. I go into the trip with a very positive mindset as all I plan to do is swing on the swing sets and listen to extra uplifting music and do a little exploring in the woods while in the midst of my mushroom mayhem. At first I made a piece of toast to put the mushrooms on since there were so many. I did this on an empty stomach with orange juice. After the first piece of shroom toast I decided to just devour them by themselves since the taste didn't really bother me. I eat all 14 grams of the thick penis envies and sit around for a half an hour before I started walking a short 10 minute distance to the park. On my way I felt moderately sedated, but the trip hadn't started yet. I make my way to the swing set and start swinging. It's about 2.45 in the afternoon and there were a couple of families with kids playing around the park, going on the slides, chasing each other, just having some good old fashioned wholesome family fun. And I'll be goddamned if I allowed that. So this little boy and little girl walked up to me to play with me while I was swinging. They threw a ball at me and I threw it back to them. Their parents then came up to me to make small talk and they were very, very friendly and were happy to see me playing with their kids. And then it hit me like I was a baby and the shrooms were Casey Anthony. My vision starts rippling, pulsating in a translucent geometric energy to the point where I could not see the ground inches away from me. The little boy had thrown the ball in front of me. I go to grab it and miss multiple times. The ball was fully camouflaged into the wood chips on the ground. The parents noticed and had this very emotionally startled vibe to them. Are you okay? They asked. I literally was about to say, yeah, I'm fine, and then fell off the swing when I tried to reach for the ball again. Are you sure you're alright? Well, there's absolutely no way I can maneuver around this. I have to come up with some kind of lie. So I pretend that I was in high school even though I graduated a year ago and came straight from my house. I got pressure to do shrooms by some kids on the bus. I really wish I didn't do them. This shocked them as they gave me very weird overwhelming looks then said, Come on kids, we gotta go. And then I blacked out. In what seemed like a blink of an eye, the whole family vanished, like into thin air. No kids or cars in sight. I snapped out of the blackout from the very overwhelming intensity of the shrooms, wondering if all that actually happened. I was alone, swinging very slowly with my head down. My vision was like crystallized bubble wrap. All the inanimate objects around me appeared to be sentient. I could feel the psilocybin traveling through the veins in my forehead. My brain felt like it was in a vacuum. 
Auditory hallucinations bombard me, and the best way I can describe them is if every noise was going down a drain and echoing through a pipe. I could hear conversations of people that were very far away. It was like my eardrum turned into a stretchy putty. I got up from the swing, took about two steps, and tripped and fell on my ass. This would keep happening continuously. I could not stand up for the life of me. This effect was a hundred times worse than my balance while being drunk. The trees look more like spiraling fractals than they did trees. I'm vibrating like an Xbox controller on rapid fire. An external force communicates by tuning my consciousness into this alternate vibrant realm of infinity. I get the almost violent urge to empty my bladder. Over the years, my ketamine, DPH, jimsonweed, DXM, and alcohol abuse has inflamed my bladder into the size of a 2 liter soda, and it was full to the brim. I pull my pants down to urinate, and it just pours out immediately on its own with the force of a fire hose. The intensity of the urination combined with my lack of inhibitions and balance caused me to fall over mid-piss. I'm peeing all over myself. I said, well fuck these clothes then, and removed all the pissy clothing from my body. Not too long after, I forget why I'm naked. I felt so connected to the earth, and thought I must be new to prepare for intercourse, so I decided to have sex with the earth. I dig a hole into the ground and insert my dick into it and start pumping. I am merged into mother nature. She is me and I am her. This connection brought out feelings of wanting to further submerge myself with the earth, so I started eating chunks of dirt straight out of the ground. During my dirt feast and muddy fuck fest, I look up cause I hear commotion. There was another wholesome family at the park. I picked up their vibes in an instant, the shock in their eyes beamed into my demonic saucers, their energy deflated like a balloon. I hear a woman's voice go, oh my god, and in response to this, I start growling, gnawing more chunks of dirt into my mouth like a madman and thrusting myself harder into the ground. They run to their cars and I growl some more, so they run faster. I start busting out into a salvia-like laughter, absolutely deranged and insane. I stop eating dirt so I can make dirt angels into the ground. With every movement, my bare naked body gets ate up by more and more bugs. As I was staring up into the sky, there were these spherically fractalized structures in the clouds. They look like artwork from Larry Carlson. A helicopter swings into view, and with my enhanced hearing, it was incredibly loud. It sounded like police had their megaphones out were yelling in a distorted jumbled funk. It sounded like they were making commands. This very much freaked me out, and I snapped out of my ego dissolution. I put my dirty clothes back on and look for my phone and house keys. After 10 minutes of searching, I give up and realize I needed to get out of here as soon as possible. As I'm about to leave, my friend Skylar pulls up in her charger. I had no idea why she was here, but I was extremely relieved. She came to save the day. I hop in the passenger seat and let out a heavy sigh. She covers her mouth and says, Oh my god, what have you been doing? You smell like piss, and what's that brown stuff around your mouth? I look in the mirror and slightly remember what had went down. I was eating dirt and I fucked mother nature. She bursts out laughing in disbelief. How many shrooms did you take? I say, a half ounce. She laughs again. Only you. I urge her to drive so she pulls out of the small parking area and towards my home. I look behind me and see two police cars pull into the parking lot shortly after we had left. Holy shit balls! I just got extremely fucking lucky. I mumble a thank you to the psychedelic entities of hyperspace.
I was still having stretched out auditory hallucinations and my pupils were like supermassive black holes. So how did you have this impeccable timing? I asked. You texted me a half hour ago to come get you. I literally have no recollection of this whatsoever. I'm actually in awe that all of this insanity came together to prevent me from getting arrested. She drops me off at my place and tells me to be safer next time. Anxiety comes over me as I reach for the door handle because I did not want to ring the doorbell and have my parents come to see me. I had to sneak around them so I could change my stinky clothes and wash my face. I push open the door quietly. Yes, it's already unlocked. My parents were upstairs in the kitchen watching TV and turn towards me as I walk in. Where have you been? I tell them I have to go to the bathroom and run in there to clean up. I change my clothes, wash my face, and brush my teeth. I take a look at myself in the mirror and I look crazy high. I'd say I was coming down now but still getting that fisheye magnification on my eyes and other features of my face. I walk out the bathroom and my mom says, Come here! She takes one glance at me and says, You look drunk. Wow, my mom is such a noob. I just agree and tell her I went to the park for a few hours and got drunk with some friends. Surprisingly, she didn't hound me with nagging and more questions, so I go downstairs to watch TV and let my trip die down. Wow, my first bad mushroom trip. There are literally hundreds of bug bites all over my body. I lost all my stuff, and these shrooms kicked my ass. When I was 14, my cousin, who was now literally a living dead person, convinced me that what made huffing dangerous was when people ingested the chemicals, as he so ignorantly put it, and that the air was safe. He claimed everyone says huffing is bad because they do it wrong. He proceeded to fill a plastic bag with a propellant room deodorizer, and then when it was full he dumped out the liquid which had pulled at the bottom. He claimed most people leave it in the bag or shoot the shit directly into their mouth through a shirt or rag. Then he took it all in one inhale and then exhaled after holding it. His eyes glazed over, muscles in his face twitched randomly, and then finally he started drooling on himself. He kinda came to around 10 minutes later raving about how much he just tripped balls. He claimed that he felt great and that his method of making huffing safe by dumping out liquid and not breathing it back into the bag to keep inhaling it had kept him and his friends perfectly healthy. After my experience though, I'm sure he knew he was lying to me. Unfortunately, I was much less drug savvy at the time and assumed that my cousin knew something most people didn't know about a drug class that I knew nothing about. I tried his method, I don't know how I felt, I just know I really really liked it. I remember doing it with him for the rest of the day until the can was dead empty. I remember believing that I enjoyed the effects, even though the only effect was blacking out and waking up face down and drool with a bag in your fist. I never remembered one single second of the high, the only part I was conscious for was the suicidal headache and the night of vomiting that followed. After that you'd think that I'd want to stop. I woke up the next morning and craved it horribly. This was made worse by my cousin saying that's normal for your first time. I told him I couldn't remember anything other than the few minutes between huffs and being sick when we ran out. He claimed this was normal. My memory is so fucked that I'm not sure how many days I huffed with him for, but I do know that after the second day I didn't get sick anymore, and even when I wasn't actively huffing I felt intoxicated like I was drunk, but I was a hundred times more stupid and forgetful than alcohol could ever make a person. 
At some point, my cousin started talking about how the best high is inhaling gasoline fumes, but that we should only do that just once as he did not have a fake method for making it safe. Now gasoline, I do remember what that felt like. We took the small half-empty spare gas tank from the garage and unscrewed the smaller cap on the back then inhaled through the spout. I was still in a severe stupor and wanted my cousin to think I was cool, so I was the guinea pig. I took a lungful and exhaled. What happened next was nothing like inhaling propellant. It started at the base of my spine. A very warm and intensely pleasurable sensation slowly crept up and it felt like as it passed each vertebrae, my whole body would vibrate more and more with warmth and intensity. It felt like it took a whole lifetime to reach my head, but when it did, I felt an explosion of warmth and rushing that washed over my whole body. Once I could register sight and sound again, I have no idea how long I was out of it for. The first thing I heard was a phone's busy signal extremely loud, which then faded as I shook my head and tried to figure out where I was. I saw my cousin slumped over the gas can on the floor and remembered the orgasmic rush I had just had and promptly stumbled giggling back to the can. The next X amount of days are completely blacked out. One major problem with using gas fumes to get high is that in two or three days of huffing, we still had the same amount of gas in the tank, so it was an endlessly reusable drug with a rush that one will never want to stop chasing. After no more than a week of huffing, I was a zombie whose only function was to keep breathing air filtered through that can. I must have remembered to drink some amount of water because I'm still alive, but I think the last time I ate was the morning after my first use. My parents were out of town for all of this and my cousin and his mom had been ignoring each other for years. When I finally was dropped off at home, my parents immediately noticed that I was really fucked up on something. I claimed to be really, really drunk, which they believed, and after some yelling, I was finally allowed to pass out of my own bed after telling myself that it was no big deal and I'll just go back to smoking weed and getting drunk for kicks and it'll be fine. At 3am that morning, I woke up to throbbing pain in my head and eyes, extreme nausea but only dry retching, and even though I felt very sober, I couldn't focus my vision and attempting to walk resulted in so much dizziness that once I got myself laying back down, I was dry retching again. This feeling was combined with crushing depression and cravings brought me to the point where I probably would have tried to commit suicide at the worst of it, if only I could have walked 3 feet without being immobilized by pain and nausea. I laid in bed and cried for hours, honestly hoping that I would die soon because I was convinced that's what was happening. It took three days before I was able to get out of bed and be able to pretend I was better from drinking myself sick my first time trying liquor, which my parents still believe. It took a month for the headaches and pain behind my eyes to go away. I was severely depressed and considered suicide every day for the next year, only getting better after I eased myself back into smoking weed and spent months in therapy. And finally, I know, not think, but know, that I did permanent brain damage. Inhalants are not drugs, and they do not get you high. The pleasurable effects I experienced were my brain's panicked endorphin responses to the neurotoxins that I was exposing it to. Inhalants make you feel high by doing brain and nerve damage. Even if you huff one time, the effects are irreversible. Huffing is getting high on brain damage. My cousin and I never truly spoke again, and we never will. His mother wrote off never leaving his room as typical teenage angst and assumed he never came out when she was home because he blamed her for his father walking out a year before. 
I tried to talk to him a few times over the next two months, but he never came to the door, and his mom had to start working a second job, so he was alone all day every day. I still blame myself for not telling my aunt to take him to the hospital the day that I realized he was still using when I couldn't get him to unlock his room door to let me in. I was already horribly depressed and I couldn't imagine how much worse his poisoning would be than mine was. I finally told my aunt that I thought he might be smoking crack and she ended up calling 911 when she couldn't get any response whatsoever through the door. He was severely malnourished, like literally skin and bones. He was, and is, completely unable to speak or make coordinated movements. He never got better, and never will, and the hardest part for me is that my aunt blames herself. If I had just fucking told my parents the truth the night I claimed to be extremely drunk, then they would have freaked out appropriately, and my cousin might still have a life. I ruined my aunt's life also. Her son requires full-time care the way an infant would, only he never smiles, never laughs, and never cries. He just stares blankly. The part that truly makes me physically sick is that she is so grateful to me for my selfish lying. She thinks I saved her only son's life when the truth is that I could have saved him, but I was too much of a coward. That was eight years ago and I still have horrible nightmares. I feel like his soul will haunt me my whole life. I have used a lot of actual drugs over those eight years and none of them are anything like huffing. Take it from me as I have done both. You would be doing much less harm to yourself smoking crystal meth all day long than taking one single huff. It took me three hours to write this and I did not do it for my own health. There is no such thing as the safest inhalant. They all create euphoric effects as a result of destroying the brain. I have to live with this horrible lie for the rest of my life. I am a grown man and I will break down into tears when I remember how I felt after being poisoned like that and I imagine my cousin living in that hell or possibly something even more torturous. He was unable to speak or even go to the bathroom on his own. A prisoner inside his own mind, doomed to spend every second of his life he still has, praying for death. Up until age 18, I never ingested drugs. It all started with weed from a friend, then moved on to coke, crack, spice, stimulants, opiates, benzos, and psychedelics. I have done it all except PCP and ketamine. The drug abuse has been extremely severe and uncontrollable, resulting in major kidney, liver, and intestine damage now at age 26. Managing my opiate addiction of six years was the worst, but I got on Suboxone in year five or six. When I couldn't tolerate the withdrawals from Sub after a year of weaning and attempting to stop six times, I quit my job and went on vacation to Florida on August 5th, 2018, and did not get back home until August 19th with my girlfriend who does not use. Before we hopped in the car for the 700 mile drive south, I already had a plan to get high and I hid it from my girl. It was my secret which did not last. My plug and old buddy in Florida could give me pure blue crystal shards for 80 a gram. Very good quality compared to the crap I see here in North Carolina. I wrestled with the idea but decided wrong. My addicted brain convinced me that since I was on vacation I may as well enjoy myself and get high. I deserved it and my mind said yes to it. By using meth I can kick the suboxone and stop my opiate problem for good. This plan worked and backfired horribly. 
Meth did overpower the horrible feelings and sensations of the withdrawal. Meth is so strong it seems to overpower just about 95% of all drugs. This I knew would work and help me, or so I thought. Then I became a meth addict in return upon stopping opiates. Here's my story on the gradual loss of my sanity which took a mere 14 days of foolish abuse, redosing, and mixing drugs with meth. It all started with buying a whole gram on August 8th, three days after we got to Florida. I tried for three days to kick subs, but then I caved into my sinister plan of replacing one addiction for another. My plug came by at 12.30pm and sold me the G for $80. We went into the bedroom and prepared my first dose of this cunning poison. I was so excited that my hands started sweating. He prepared a small line for me and I railed it, about a half point from the first bag and I instantly loved it. My dealer at the time said to be careful and do not ever smoke it as for you will become a fiend. I did not listen because I was all about the forbidden fruits of life. Just hearing the dangers made me want it more. I exclusively snorted the first bag and did not use any other ROA. I stayed awake for three days straight on the first bag. Already then, I forgot what sleeping and eating were like. My use was already out of control. Basic functions like sleeping, hygiene, and family became an afterthought. I was so high and spun from the first batch, I locked myself away from the world because I could not act normal and looked filthy and crazy. After I snorted and ate the whole gram, I ran out and crashed for one day. After that, I bought the second gram when I wasn't feeling good from withdrawal. The second gram lasted another three days. I found oral dosing under the tongue to be better than most ROAs. I ran out and crashed hard for two days in bed, super depressed. The comedowns were getting worse. At this point, I already lost major weight. I looked anorexic and sickly from the lack of sleeping every day and barely eating any food or drinking liquids. I was stuck on a path to utter annihilation, but I caved again. On the third gram purchase, I pushed another binge. Three binges in 14 days. I slept not even five of those days total. My tolerance was also going up because the third gram lasted only two days. It seemed like a total waste of dope smoking it, with less bioavailability and easily forgetting how much I was doing. I opened the bag and broke up the giant rock so I can load the pipe. First few times smoking it, I did it wrong, which frustrated me, but I eventually learned. Once I perfected fine art of smoking and twirling the glass, I became infatuated with it. It became my life. Nothing else mattered to me except the ice and glass. I would say smoking crack was horribly fiendish, but out of all of my experiences, smoking meth had the worst pull and grip on my mind. Nothing in life came close to this addiction and I was hooked. My girl, little puppy, and even myself did not matter until the dope ran out and busted the pipe. I feared for myself of losing it all. I did not realize at the time that I was also losing my mental sanity and perceptions of reality. Smoking ice hit my brain instantly and hard. However, sometimes it had a delayed reaction and would creep up on me. On the third bag, I finished half of it smoking constantly. The pipe was constantly in my hand going through three lighters a day. At this point, my hearing was going haywire from the mental abuse of using meth like an idiot. I heard voices in the wall speaking to me and whispering, talking shit about me and how much of a junkie loser I was. 
I hallucinated metal songs, old men speaking to each other, and dogs barking when there was none in the household. I heard intense ringing of the ears which changed pitch constantly. My ears were popping and the audio hallucinations kept getting worse. I should have stopped smoking the pipe, and I did. I thought it was a good idea to take a bong rip of pot to relax. I loaded a huge cone and blasted the entire bowl in one hit. It was more weed than I have ever inhaled. My lungs could not feel the smoke at all. I held it in for 20 seconds and exploded the smoke out, coughing my lungs up. All of a sudden, after 2.5 grams of meth over the course of two weeks, sleep deprivation on and off, and the mixture of a mild psychedelic, cannabis, my mind snapped for the first time in my life. I entered psychosis and it was the most terrifying experience I've ever had. My mind became my own worst enemy. It got so bad I considered suicide as an option. It got progressively worse over the course of four hours. I walked out of my girlfriend's bedroom at 3.30 a.m. with eerie paranoia of immense danger around me. I was standing in the hallway and heard banging noises outside. I went to the front door to check on the cars. I peered through the glass and saw five cops outside standing looking at the door. One of the cops I saw his face peeking straight through the glass looking into my face directly. I backed away from the window and he held up a pistol to the glass and made a threatening gesture with a sinister smile. I backed away from the front door and turned off all the lights, grabbed a butcher knife and ran into the bathroom. The house was dead silent. All of a sudden I heard radio chatter on a police radio. They were talking outside and I heard them through three walls in the middle of a household. They said they were breaking in shortly to the suspected meth house. I hid in the bathroom, terrified for who knows how long. After a short while, I walked out of the bedroom into the living room with the knife in my hand, walking on my tippy toes into the darkness. I thought they could hear my footsteps on the soft carpet, so I was moving very slow from the small bathroom where I felt safe. They disappeared and I was freaking out more now, thinking they went to the back of the house to enter inside. It was dead silent again. I heard an intense buzzing sound in the walls around me suddenly. The room morphed and breathed with psychedelia, and I heard sounds of electricity buzzing, hard to explain the sound. I gripped the massive knife tight, hands sweating so much, beads were dripping onto the blade. It was too quiet and I anticipated trouble, eyes wide open and tweaked into a delusional, homicidal state. I walked back into the living room and turned a lamp on to see. I looked around and felt okay, but then seconds later I suddenly heard an extremely realistic, vivid, and terrifying sound. I heard a window breaking in the kitchen 15 feet away. It sounded incredibly real. The window sounded like it was kicked in with a shoe. I heard the glass fall and hit the tile floor in the kitchen, then heard a man grunt as he pulled himself through the window. I heard feet hit the floor and glass crunch under his body weight. My face dropped and my hand gripped the knife so hard I had bruises on my hand. I ran back in the bathroom and turned off the light with the door cracked slightly. I thought at this point someone was going to die and it was up to me to save everyone in the house sleeping soundly. I hid in the bathroom and heard two men in the house talking to each other, saying to grab this item to steal. The other man said he was going back towards the bedrooms. He had to get through me as for the bathroom was right in the path of where he was headed. 
I heard footsteps silently and carefully approaching around the corner from the kitchen where the window was busted in. I was sweating profusely, shaking, my heart dropped, and the knife felt like an extension of my own body. I knew this was it. Rather, I die from a home invasion or I murder for the first time. I could not exit the bathroom for fear I was going to get shot and killed. I held my breath and crunched down in the darkness, peering out in the hall with the door cracked ready to pounce. I stayed in the bathroom concealed in the darkness for quite some time. I exited the bathroom and peered around a few corners, squat walking to make my body target smaller so I did not get shot suddenly. It took me 50 minutes to make sure the tiny house was clear, and in reality, it was. Nothing happened at all. I hallucinated a home invasion at 3.30 a.m. It was completely real to me, but it did not end there. I woke up my girlfriend and made her check the house. She said I was tweaking too hard. I did not believe her. I hit the pipe more and started convulsing. My chest and head had severe pains from the high blood pressure, and I could not stop moving, breathing extremely fast. I considered the hospital, but I couldn't do it again. I had no weed and could not calm down. I decided to go out for a walk to breathe fresh air. Huge mistake. I entered the realm of hell with the shadow people for the first time. It was not a friendly experience. It was 4.30 a.m. I carefully exited the house. I was in a full, thick body sweat, eyes blown. I had hypothermia, was starving, and dehydrated. I was so spun, all I had on was my shorts and a shirt, no shoes. I started walking a block and was walking very quickly. I made it 500 feet and turned a corner. The hallucinations went from audio to visual. As I turned left to another road, I saw dozens of black cats and dogs running across the street in front of me. A man peered out from behind a bush. I couldn't tell if it was real due to the psychosis intensifying and my mental state turned for the worse due to seeing that one shadow man appearing. I became hostile and more paranoid. I ended up getting lost, despite only wanting to walk a few blocks. I knew the neighborhood well but could not think clearly. I lost track of time and location and was increasingly desperate to get home. It seemed darker than usual outside. I looked at my phone and the screen was so bright I had to put it away. With ways on my phone, I could not articulate a thought to help me and gave up. Walking in the middle of the road at 5.30 a.m., suddenly lights and the sound of a car were approaching from behind. I saw red, green, and white vivid lights on the ground in front of my body, getting brighter as the vehicle approached me and the sound of a car engine running. My back was turned. It did not dare turn around for fear of cops. The car stopped feet behind me and I stopped walking, gripping the huge kitchen knife in my waistband. I heard three doors open and close to the car. A man called out my name and said to turn around. I held my concealed knife and I turned and... Nothing was there. I could not believe how crazy the hallucinations were becoming, but it was not over. It got even worse. The most terrifying episode I ever imagined or experienced. It seemed all too real and I couldn't handle the paranoia anymore. I dropped the knife and was too paranoid from cops showing up. After walking around in a circle for another 30 minutes getting more lost, I finally found a street nearby the house. I found my way and was only 2,000 feet from the front door. 
My shirt was completely drenched in sweat. I took it off and wrung it out, sweat spilling onto the street. I left my shirt off and carried it in hand. I started speed walking faster. I turned a corner and was so close to home. This is when the most intense fear of my life got triggered. It gave me PTSD, I believe, and I will never forget what I saw and the intense fear. I will never forget, scarred into my brain forever from sheer terror. It was like Satan raped my mind and soul, a sense of pure evil and hostility. I was high, but I was panicking, fearful, and desperate to escape my mind. I just could not do it. All of a sudden, I heard doors to homes opening and closing. The homes were behind me only, not in front of the path I was on to the house. I turned around to see and froze from fear. Black shadow people calmly walked out of their homes one at a time, one person from each house. After each one came out, they stood on their driveways. They faced me and did not speak or move, only glared. They only glared with a hostile, evil feel to each one of them. I started walking in reverse facing them. The panic exploded into full, incredibly horrific fear. The shadow people started walking towards me, and behind them, dozens more started running out of each house. The shadow people I saw had bright red, demonic eyes and evil spirited feeling. Then I noticed the ones running had two massive knives in each of their hands, the same knife I had from before. They all started chasing, running full sprint. I locked eyes with one of them before I started running full speed down the street, only a few hundred feet from home. I tossed my shirt onto the grass and screamed. I screamed in pure terror and I was running faster than I ever ran in my life. I felt like I was running 30 miles per hour. While extremely stimmed, I could have had a heart attack or stroke. I did not care. Fight or flight mode mixed with psychosis made me believe I was going to be brutally murdered and sent to hell. My body was sweating so much I couldn't even see. My eyes were covered in sweat droplets, but I did not stop running. I was so scared I cried while sprinting, thinking this was it. I am going to die and I cannot escape this nightmare. I wanted to commit suicide to end the mental anguish. If I had a gun, I would have. But my desire to live overcame me and I made it to the front door in less than a minute since I was close nearby. I slammed the door behind me and the shadow people ran up. Dozens of them covered the front lawn and driveway. They stood motionless as I looked through the glass and I saw a sea of glowing red, sinister eyes staring me down. Just as I was looking at them, they all disappeared into the air in the form of a black wispy smoke, except one. The one singular shadow person walked straight up to the window, stared me straight in the eyes from inches away with just a thin window frame blocking him from me. The shadow then got even closer and came through the glass and into me. All of a sudden, I got down on my hands and knees and could not breathe. I felt my body being entered or exited from an external force I could not describe even to this day. After a few minutes, I got up and the psychosis lessened. The paranoia remained and I did not sleep that night. I stayed in the house and did not dare to leave again. I did not redose anything and just stopped. I was too afraid. To this day, four months later, I have an intense fear of darkness, walking around neighborhoods at night, no matter how safe. I have an aversion to knives and I'm shut in even more so than before. 
I fear that the panic and terror I endured gave me lasting mental scars and irrational fears. If I decide to use meth now, I get psychosis from not even using 0.25 with just meth alone. Psychosis appears to become easier to achieve as time goes on. Abstinence from drugs is the only thing that helps, and life is truly better without meth. Mixing large amounts of it with cannabis appears to trigger psychosis, or make it much worse if it's already occurring. As fun as it is, and amazing as it was, it was never worth putting in my body. So I've been meaning to write this down for some time, but I haven't had the time nor clear mind to do it. I had an experience on Salvia that was, is, and remains incomparable to anything I have ever experienced in my life, and it's still affecting me in a very big and negative way. I was pretty new to smoking cannabis. I'd done it a couple times in high school, but it's only been in the past couple months that I smoked it regularly, and by regularly, I mean approximately three times a week. At first, it was a sort of time-stretched feeling that I liked, and then it became a more introspective, more self-examining experience, and I usually didn't like what I saw. Anyways, fast forward a couple more weeks, and I decided I wanted to try acid for the first time. I took two hits and had a great trip. Visuals weren't too crazy, but it was a mindfuck for sure. Words started to lose their meanings, and musical phrases seemed just as valid a form of communication as a verbal phrase. Anyways, my buddy tells me he's got salvia. I had heard of it, and at this point I was really interested in trying any drug I could get my hands on. Essentially, my mindset was this. Hey, I've done LSD. I could do any drug. The only drug I knew that would be stronger than acid was DMT. I knew all drugs created different reactions in different people, but I honestly didn't expect much from salvia because, one, it was legal. Two, everyone I knew who took it told me they thought it was like weed. Harmless enough, right? As I get to my friend's place, he tells me that he had a crazy dreamlike trip where he was hang gliding over Kansas or something the night before, and it scared him so he didn't want to repeat. Hang gliding? Shit, I'll hang glide. So he gives me the pipe, fills it with salvia, lights it for me, and as I inhale, he tells me to breathe it in deep and hold. I do as I'm told and hold the smoke in for at least 15 to 20 seconds. Zeppelin's no quarters in the background. I'm ready to have a cool trip. Now let me interrupt for a second. I didn't know what extract it was. It really didn't matter in my mind. I guess what most people smoke is about 5 times, 10 times, or 20 times. According to my friend who got it from another friend, this was 90 times. I know there's some debate about extract levels and potency, but this is all I know about the salvia I personally smoked. Needless to say, I had no clue I was in store for a level 5 trip into another fucking dimension. Then, out of nowhere, the second I exhaled, I felt like someone had punched me in the face. The air left my lungs and I was in the most vulnerable state in my entire life. For some reason, the dark texture of the salvia reminded me of poison, and suddenly I felt like I had just smoked lead or something. Almost immediately, extremely venomous-looking kaleidoscope patterns filled most of my vision. The only thing I could make out was my fucking phone on the table. I struggled to breathe and I could hardly speak, so all I could muster was, Get that out of here, as I pointed to the phone, its LED screen shining through the fractal shapes. 
I think at that point I didn't even know what a phone was, but for some reason it needed to go. My friend took it and put it in the back room. When he returned, I was a soulless shell. I felt the most intense feeling of deja vu as all sense of self died. I had been here before, now why the fuck would I ever return? The idea of taking this drug recreationally seemed as naive, foolish, and immature as anything you could ever imagine. It was like hell, honestly, in the sense that you could have never imagined something so horrifying and evil that it really is ineffable. It's purely impossible to explain, but you're there, and you're definitely experiencing it. There is nothing in this dimension to relate it to. Quite literally, there are no words to explain what I felt other than complete and utter despair and fear. Reality just broke apart and I was left in this fractal void. I couldn't speak, I couldn't feel any part of my body, ideas broke down to the point where I couldn't think for myself. The images I was seeing were more intense than I can even register, so much so that the entire experience was sort of like sensory overload overdriven to the max. I guess my eyes were open and I was just sitting there with a stupid look on my face, but I was in a completely different dimension. I can remember a couple parts of this extremely confusing and disorienting experience, but like I said earlier, it's hard to put into words. My friend asked me something like, you trippin? But it just kept skipping, like, you, you, trip, 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 trippy, tripping? Suddenly, the words lost their meanings and it became really sloppy sounding. The visual skipped with it and it was like everything in the room started to pull apart and I started to see layers within everything. It was kind of like the cover of Pink Floyd's Umaguma, but everything was losing its detail and gaining new detail. The visuals were kind of like if you could imagine flying through an image or maybe traveling through two mirrors facing each other and just having the pattern of what you're seeing fall into itself and then reform and repeat. Now, this sounds cool and all, but at this point I had no clue I was under any kind of drug. I didn't know who I was or where I was. I just had this feeling, an extremely overwhelming feeling, that I had caused this disaster. I somehow did something extremely bad that caused the universe to collapse on itself. This was an extremely personal experience and I felt no connection to any other life forms at all. I was a prisoner in my own mind. I built reality and now I accidentally did something that just brought everything crashing down. It was a devastating solipsist experience. I remember the feeling that within the fractal was a choir of cartoon-esque objects created in the kaleidoscope pattern that were singing to me about the trip, ushering me in. I remember seeing twisted pictures of my friend's face, but nothing was disjunct or cut up like a film. It was all a fluid evolution from one thing to another, but it was so complex and overwhelming that my mind could not comprehend what I was seeing. Everything was alien, nothing was real or even tangible. I could see it clearly and yet it somehow was so intense, so bizarre, that it eluded my mind's ability to process it all. Oh, and all the while I was listening to Zeppelin's The Ocean, the constant beat and Robert Plant's Aha uh -huh playing in the background, but I didn't even remember it until weeks later under weed listening to the same record. I felt gravity's pull, but it was pulling me sideways. I felt an extremely strong tug downward, and this intensified as the trip became more and more intense. Suddenly, I felt like I couldn't grasp what I was seeing anymore. Not that I could before, but before I felt like I was a slave to the hallucinations. I couldn't think for myself. I couldn't reassure myself that I was on a drug. My mind was spent. Completely. I felt like a vegetable who couldn't even grasp what he was seeing. 
Now, my mind was trying to grasp it, but it couldn't. I felt my mind desperately trying to grab at ideas, but it couldn't quite reach. This inability to grasp the trip, coupled with unbearable pins and needles in an extreme downward pull, started to create some sensation of self or a body, but I felt like it was stretched out over the entire field of my vision. I had become the two-dimensional image of this warped and constantly moving alternate dimension. Suddenly, it began to fall apart and I felt like I was free-falling through this picture while I was the picture. As my field of vision was warped and reassembling and being pulled apart, I felt my own body falling apart. Now, while this was all happening, I suppose I got up, started stumbling across the room, knocked a bunch of shit over and then fell back and almost broke my friend's table. Needless to say, all the glass pieces were knocked on the floor and I was stumbling around like some kind of village drunk in some old Irish novel. Suddenly, as I was fighting for my life, trying to climb out of the layers of reality that were falling around me, I saw my friend's girlfriend's face trying to hold me. Apparently, they were trying to subdue me for some time, but being that I was racing for my life in another dimension, falling to my death through millions of layers of reality, it was a little hard to get through to me. But the second I saw her face, I suddenly realized that I was a human, that I had taken a drug, even that I was a sentient being. All of that went out the window with just a little bit of some good old salvia. My only instinct was to attempt to climb out of this racing, descending, swirling fractal picture. I was drenched in sweat to the point where my clothes were dripping, my heart was racing at a thousand beats per minute, and I could hardly speak as my friends placed me in a chair, asking me what I saw. I told them to give me a minute to regain my composure. Much of the room was knocked over, but I was surprised the whole room wasn't completely destroyed because I felt like I must have been clawing away at reality, desperately trying to escape from my personal hell. The only way I can honestly describe how I felt falling was down and to the right. The three-dimensional world fell apart and I could only perceive things in a two-dimensional light. Jesus Christ, my entire perception of reality was annihilated under the drug. The term ego death doesn't even begin to describe what I felt, but there was nothing to be gained from where I was. It was pure insanity to the nth degree. I'd gone in expecting some kind of spiritual experience or something meaningful that I could come away with, but there was none of that in Salvia land. This was pure unfiltered madness to a degree I wouldn't wish on anyone. This is where I started having problems. Right when I came back from Salvia Land, my friends let me lie down and watch a movie with them. I was shaking so hard, I just wanted to lay down and relax. They encouraged me to smoke a bowl. I felt like I was midway through an acid trip and the weed just made it stronger. As we watched the film, I felt like the people on screen were really strange looking and as we ate some food, I felt myself falling back into the Salvia. Not in the sense that I saw visuals, but my mind was falling back into that strange place and I could see in my mind's eye exactly what I was hours earlier. The next couple times I smoked weed were similar, intense flashbacks to salvia to the point where it truly disturbed me. Then one day, another friend smoked me out with some hash he smokes daily. Suddenly, I had acid-like thoughts and I had to backtrack just to realize I was in the room with him. Time to go, I thought, and went back to my car, but it was too strong to drive. I could barely talk thanks to the cotton mouth. I tried calling a friend but could barely communicate. Since then, I've been getting stronger and stronger reactions to weed. When I first started smoking after salvia, first couple weeks, I would feel the salvia sensation, extreme pins and needles, and I would feel like I'm being pulled downward. 
I could play with my depth perception, but sometimes if I stared at something too long, I got the sensation that there was no depth perception, that I was looking at a two-dimensional image that covered my entire field of vision, and then I could see little parts of that image moving and falling apart, like a much less intense version of what went down in Salvia Land. People's faces also seem to be hovering over their face. When I'm stoned around my friend who is my salvia trip sitter, if I look at him directly in the face, the rest of the room, or my perception of everything in my peripheral, creates this kind of tunnel effect that leads straight to his face. Another thing I think I remember feeling under salvia, but I'm not quite sure I remember it. Pictures start to dance just like a low-level acid trip. Calling it strange is more than a colossal understatement. Weed has been taking me to a weird twisted version of the normal world, something it never did before. When I'm sober, floaters and white specks really dominate my vision. It gets kind of distracting when I look up at the sky. The reason I'm putting this out there is because the day before yesterday was the worst. I felt anxiety and fear unlike anything I've ever felt. I started to question my own reality. The way objects look on weed began to look extremely disturbing. People started to look disturbingly alien, as if it was the first time I'd ever laid eyes on a human before. I felt as if I was realizing something humans aren't supposed to realize. I was beginning to see things working behind the scenes, and it was frightening as hell. It's kind of like that splinter in your mind that reality isn't what you've always thought it to be, and now that you know the truth, it will haunt you forever. I have trouble even relating to my memories, my past, my identity, who I thought I was, and who I wanted to be. For the first time in my life, I feel afraid. Of what? I have no idea. But it's this feeling, it's deep within me. I think I might have to stop all drugs for good if I ever want to feel normal again. I have never felt so alien, I never knew anyone could feel so alien and alone. I never felt much emotion throughout my life, never was afraid of much, never cried over anything, never was very emotionally attached to anybody or anything. But now, I'm scared of something I can't even put into words. And I've broken down a couple times trying to explain it to people. My biggest fear now is that when I'm not feeling this intense and overwhelming panic, I can't even relate to it in the slightest bit, and all that's on my mind is, I feel fine. Hey, I'm ready to do some more drugs. The story that I will be sharing with you occurred in the fall of 2019 and involves one of the worst experiences of my life, my first trip with DPH. Before I can delve into anything, however, I want to give you some context for why I did what I did. Only then will any of this make any sense. I was 19 at the time, young and open-minded, but quite naive. In the summer leading up to the fall, I experienced a lot of new things for the first time. Relevant to this story, two are important. My exposure to drugs and the development of my bipolar disorder. I'll start off with the drug use. My friends and I began to experiment with cannabis the summer before the fall of 2019, and boy, I got hooked fast. It was a great time in my life. I had some amazing experiences. I would work out, do creative writing, and many other things while high. Even the most mundane things like folding laundry for instance became enjoyable. It was amazing to say the least how a chemical could bring me instant joy. As with all good things, however, this would soon come to an end. 
You see, I was in a military program back at university. It kept me structured, healthy, and less likely to do dumb shit. More specifically, it kept me away from substances since they would conduct random drug tests. And since this was the organization where I got most of my scholarships from, I knew I had to drop the cannabis. This is why as summer came to an end, I had to wean off cannabis for good. Even though it's not supposed to be addictive, I definitely felt psychological withdrawal. Things were more dull and not as fun. Life seemed to turn gray. While I can't be certain, I think this is where things began to go south. During this period, a deep depression began to form, and with it, the beginning of self-harm. I really don't know why I started in the first place, but it made the hollow feeling I was experiencing from the depression and withdrawals go away. I wasn't trying to kill myself, at least not yet. It was simply a nasty habit that was forming. Anyways, I ended up going back to university in the fall cannabis-free, but my depression and self-harm came with me. Things were spiraling out of control. My symptoms only seemed to increase as the semester went on, such as lack of sleep, depressed mood, irritability, loss of appetite, etc. It wasn't just depression though, other symptoms also appeared. Periods of high energy, racing thoughts, spikes in creativity, just to name a couple. What I didn't know at the time was that it wasn't just a depressive episode, it was actually the development of my bipolar disorder. I know what you're all thinking up until now. What does this have to do with DPH? Well, this is where two other symptoms of my disorder appeared that would eventually lead me to my first trip. High impulsivity and delusions. My impulses got out of hand. I couldn't hold back spending, what I said, and how much I cut myself. It was almost like a drug addiction. I would feel more alive, more alert, more like normal. Aside from that, I also began experiencing delusions. I firmly thought and felt that I was the worst human being ever and needed to help everyone at whatever cost to make up for it. I thought I had to punish myself by self-harming. I really believed I was worth nothing. No, less than nothing. Even when confronted with proof that it wasn't the case by my friends, I wouldn't listen. I was in extreme denial and convinced of my delusions. Fast forward a few more weeks and things had only gotten worse. I'll spare you the details, but just know that my bipolar disorder was getting out of hand and more noticeable. Anyways, I was in the restroom browsing Instagram one day, depressed out of my mind, when a meme popped up that caught my eye. It went a little something like this. Mom, can you give me money to buy some Benadryl, a frog said, to help you with your sleep, she replied. Yes, the frog said, I actually take 700 milligrams like a boss, delirient psychosis time. I was puzzled. I wasn't sure what the meme meant, but I knew what delirium and psychosis were. I was a psychology major. Curious, when I got back to my dorm, I did some research on what I would soon learn was called diphenhydramine, or DPH. I found many accounts on Reddit and Arrowhead that described full trip reports. Spiders, shadow people, insects, auditory hallucinations, and an entity called the Hat Man. To say I was intrigued would have been an understatement. In my eyes, there is a source of untapped potential at my disposal. Drug tests didn't test for antihistamines. I was in the clear. Nothing was stopping me. Nothing was in my way. After a few more days of research, a delusion began to form in my head. It was gradual, but I eventually came to a realization and justification for why I had to do DPH. The rationale went something like this. 
Nothing is wrong in my life, yet I still feel depressed. My depression isn't getting any better. I have not experienced hardship. DPH could show me true hardship. DPH could be my wake-up call to combat my depression. I will come out of the experience a new woman. Reading that back to myself now makes me cringe. I really wasn't sure what the hell I was on about, but at the time it made perfect sense to me why I had to carry out this trip. As I slowly formed my plan, I came to tell two of my closest friends and most trusted friends. For the sake of this story, I'll call them Jacqueline and Aaron. Jacqueline was the type of friend to let you vent non-stop and offer non-judgmental feedback. She would make a great therapist. When I told her my idea, she showed concern, but let me defend my point. I must have been pretty convincing since she eventually relented and promised not to interfere. Then there was Aaron. Aaron, much like Jacqueline, was a good listener. He was a bit more likely to give his own input, but I liked that about him. It kept things interesting. I thought I would be able to convince him just like Jacqueline. I thought I made perfect sense. Aaron didn't think so, though. In fact, he expressed a significant amount of concern in my idea. I did my best to try and reason with him, but he wasn't having it. Aaron asked me a lot of questions, many of which I knew would disprove my point, so I lied. In the end, we agreed to disagree, and I thought that would be the end of it. A few days later, Aaron and I were spending time together, and the subject of DPH was brought back up. I was initially excited because I thought Aaron had finally come around, but fun fact, no. Instead, he lectured me on how dangerous it was, that I could have seizures, that I could go into respiratory depression, that I could die at the dose I was planning on doing, 700 milligrams. I got extremely defensive at this and told him to mind his own business. Everything would be fine, I had to go through with it. Before I left Aaron, however, he asked me one final question. When are you doing it? Stupidly, I told him the exact date, this coming weekend. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but I would soon come to regret telling him. One day after our band practice, I forgot to mention I was part of the band, Aaron asked me to come over to his dorm. Confused but intrigued, I obliged. Once in his dorm, he sat me down and looked at me very intensely. What came out of his mouth next sent a shockwave of emotions across my body. He told on me. He told on me to the highest authority of our organization. Aaron said that it was for my own good. One thing you should know about me is that I'm usually a very understanding and passive woman, but at that moment, that girl was gone. Instead, a bomb exploded. I told Aaron off in a way I had never done to anyone. I think I experienced all stages of grief in that argument. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, but no acceptance. It was unfathomable to me that Aaron would ever betray me. I felt more hopeless and alone in that moment than I've ever felt in my entire life. I genuinely thought I had no one left and that my life was going to be ruined forever. Once I got back to my dorm, my seething anger turned into a massive crying spell. I cried and wailed so loudly that my friends eventually came to my aid. When they tried to get me to talk and find out what was wrong, I couldn't say anything. I didn't want anyone finding out about my DPH trip. I knew they would try and stop me, so I told them that my depression and self-harm had gotten out of control and I was just really sad, which was true, just not the real truth. After several more excruciating moments, I finally calmed down enough to where I could breathe normally. Regaining my composure, I told my friends that I needed time alone. They asked if I was really okay, and I lied, saying yes. And so, they left. 
Once I ensured that they were truly gone, I got dressed, grabbed my keys, and walked to my car. The trip wasn't going to happen on the weekend anymore. It was going to happen today. I still remember how cold and cloudy that October day was. It was the perfect weather to stay indoors. Well, I would soon be indoors, but I had to run a few errands first. I started with getting food at my favorite restaurant, a sushi place I liked a lot. After getting my order, I then went to my local supermarket. Before I could begin my search, however, I had a sort of cosmic coincidence. This should have been a sign for me not to do my trip, but by sheer luck, I ran into the chaplain of our unit back in my military program. His job was to listen to our problems, offer support, and guide us to the right resources, exactly what I needed. I would have shared what was going on, I should have shared what was going on, but, like I mentioned before, I felt like I couldn't trust anyone. So, just like all the other times, I lied. I told him I was here to get groceries. After a bit of small talk, we eventually parted ways. I really should have taken this as a sign, but I didn't. Nothing was going to stop me. Walking around the medicine aisles, I finally found what I was looking for. The little pink tablets of Benadryl. Excited, I grabbed the small bottle, paid for it, and headed directly to my dorm. Before I began my trip, I first ate my meal in peace. My roommate was going to be out most of the day studying, so I wouldn't have to worry about any interferences. After my meal, I took a nice warm shower. I felt an odd calmness as the water hit me. I wasn't depressed, scared, or anything. In fact, I actually felt a little happy and somewhat excited. Wrapping up my shower and drying off, I put on some comfortable PJs and began to count the pills. Like in the meme, I planned to do 700 milligrams or 28 pink tablets. I held them in my hand with anticipation. Then, after a few seconds of short contemplation, I swallowed every last tablet down with some soda. The waiting game had begun. It was around 3 p.m. According to some accounts I had read, the onset would happen in roughly 30 minutes to an hour, so I had some time to kill. As I sat at my desk, the realization of what I had done slowly crept into my mind. It was a short moment of clarity of how stupid what I had just done was. With this newfound clarity, I realized that there really was a chance this could go wrong. I realized I could die. Quickly, I began to do the only thing I thought was logical. I had to write a suicide note. For the record, I wasn't scared of dying, at least before the trip began. If I died from an overdose, so be it. If I didn't, so be it. The note was very brief. I essentially apologized for my actions and I the note was very brief. I essentially apologized for my actions that it wasn't my intention to kill myself. In hindsight, I realized there was barely any effort put into the letter. After giving a final goodbye to my parents, siblings, and friends, I put the note on my desk and climbed into bed. At around this time, it had been 30 minutes since I ingested the 700 milligrams. This is where it began. The first sign the DPH was taking effect was that I suddenly got very cold. Not even my bed sheets captured any heat. Then, a stomach ache began to form. A really bad stomach ache. The pain was comparable to a really bad period cramp. I curled into the fetal position, but the ache only got worse. Oddly enough, there was no need to vomit. During the painful aches, I developed perhaps the worst symptoms of the trip. Body aches and restlessness. I can't begin to describe how uncomfortable I felt. I was absolutely miserable. Every symptom made the other worse. My body wanted me to stretch out to avoid the restlessness, but that made it and my stomach aches worse. 
If I curled up again, the restlessness would become unbearable. Later, my leg began to shake violently. It was very hard to stop. Then, about an hour in, that's when all hell broke loose. As I looked around, I began to notice that the walls were erratically and violently shifting. It almost looked like they were breathing. After staring at the walls and ceiling for several minutes, I made the mistake of looking down. Hundreds of little clear baby spiders coated the floor. What was originally a shoe transformed into a spiky caterpillar before my very eyes. Some loose cables started to move around like snakes and giant worms. At this point, I still had some consciousness left in me, so I reasoned that they were hallucinations, but I was nevertheless petrified at the sight. I figured I should leave the dark room and into the lit hallway, but as I tried to leave my bed, I felt like my body weighed a ton. When I tried to walk, I almost fell. My legs felt like they were made of gelatin. To my disappointment, I understood that I couldn't walk, so I got back in bed. Again, I can't overstate how uncomfortable I felt. I was beginning to feel like I was going to die. This is when I had an epiphany. Sure, I wasn't scared of death, but I was scared of how I was going to die. I realized I had committed a huge mistake taking the substance. Not only was I going to die, but I was going to die in a nightmare. Rather than accepting my death, however, I tried to listen to music to calm down. Unfortunately, the opposite happened. The music was severely distorted. I couldn't recognize a single word as English. Loud banging and popping sounds also occurred, which frightened me. I immediately took off the headphones, but the auditory hallucinations continued. I heard my name being called, doors opening and closing, conversations between unfamiliar voices, etc. To say I was horrified would be a lie. I was petrified. About an hour and a half in, my consciousness began to fade in and out. It was difficult to distinguish reality from delirium. I found myself conversing with random strangers just for them to suddenly vanish in the blink of an eye. Every type of creepy crawly thing you can imagine invaded my bed, but it seemed normal to me by this point. I wasn't frightened anymore. This was until I saw probably the most haunting hallucination of the whole trip. He was really there. He looked exactly like in the meme, the hat man. In hindsight, I believe my mind conjured him up subconsciously because I had seen an image of him, but at the time, he was real. The hat man stood in the corner of the room only a few feet away. Sometimes he would walk towards the bed, other times he would walk back to the corner. The entire time he didn't speak a word, but I could hear his footsteps. They sounded like boots hitting wood, but with a reverb, comparable to walking on an empty stage. This was the last thing I remembered seeing before I blacked out. When I came to, I noticed I had fallen asleep. I dared not move a muscle, however, as my roommate was across the room studying on her bed. I had no concept of time, but there was still light seeping through the curtains, so it was still daytime. As I mentioned before, she wasn't supposed to be back until nighttime, but I had forgotten that detail in my delirious state. With peeled eyes, I stared at her from across the room. She was lying in bed with a small lamp reading a textbook. Something was very off, though. As I made out more and more of her details, the more I realized that there was something unnatural about her appearance. While the details are a bit hazy, I do remember her making threatening and frightening faces at me. Her eyes were also darting erratically back and forth, so I couldn't really tell if she was looking at me. Then, I blacked out again. I don't know how much time had passed, but I was suddenly awoken by a loud sound. After I gathered my senses, I realized it was a fire drill. 
With the little strength I had, I quickly put on a jacket and stumbled down the stairs to go outside. I should mention that my roommate wasn't in the room anymore. I assumed she was already outside. When I made it out, I saw very few people. Due to how dark it was, I could barely make them out, their silhouettes being the only distinguishing characteristic. Feeling horrible and cold from the weather, I made it to another building and sat down. I don't know how long I sat there, but after some time I got the sudden feeling that I would get found out, so I made it out of the building and back into my own. By this time, the drill had ended and everyone was back inside. When I returned before I climbed back into bed, I got a sudden and very powerful urge to vomit. I rushed as fast as I could to the restroom, barely making it. What came out was my half-digested last meal along with a load of partially digested pink tablets. I think throwing up really helped me the next day. After flushing the toilet, I collapsed onto my bed and fell into a deep slumber. The next morning was miserable. I woke up to a severe and sickening hangover. Not only were my motor skills shot, but I had wicked vertigo that constantly gave me nausea. My roommate asked me if I was okay, but I lied to her and said that I was just feeling sick. That seemed to convince her rather quickly and she didn't press on the matter. Despite feeling like absolute garbage, I got dressed and instead of going to class, I went to a trusted professor. I now knew I needed help. As I began to explain to her the nature of the incident, she quickly stopped me. She said to proceed very carefully and to choose my words wisely. She told me if I told her something regarding suicide or anything of that nature, she would be forced to involve the university due to a statute called Title IX. That sparked a fear in me similar to the one that I experienced when Aaron had told on me, so when she allowed me to continue, I lied yet again. I don't remember exactly what I told her, but it ended with her directing me to the university's counseling center. With an empathetic and hopeful smile, she let me go. After the experience, I came to learn a few other things. For one, my roommate had not been in the dorm until late at night. This was confirmed by her explaining that she found me asleep with my clothes and jacket still on. That meant that what I saw yesterday, her reading the textbook, was just a hallucination. Additionally, I heard absolutely no one talking about last night's fire drill, nothing at all. This left me wondering if it even happened. I later found out via Jacqueline that it, in fact, did not happen. To this day, I'm still convinced that it did. Those alarms sounded so real, then again, everything else felt pretty real too in my delirium. This sums up my hellish experience with DPH. As expected, I didn't come out of the trip magically rehabilitated. Instead, I came back with trauma. I can't forget how horrible I felt while on the drug. I've never experienced such discomfort and pain like that ever since. Darkness now slightly scares me, like someone is watching me. I did eventually end up going to the university's counseling center, but they were absolutely useless. Not even my self-harm was deemed severe enough to warrant further attention. What a disservice. A few years down the line and I still use substances. I experimented with DXML at university and fell in love with it. It's still my favorite drug to date. Once I graduated, I was no longer bound by the random drug tests of my program, so I started experimenting with substances like LSD, psilocybin, kratom, benzodiazepines, nicotine, and many combinations thereof. I've also used DPH several more times, but I've never done 700 milligrams or anything higher. My highest dose since has been 600 milligrams. On a more positive note, I've gotten medicated for my bipolar disorder and my self-harm has mostly stopped with therapy. 
While I still use drugs occasionally, I've tried to stick to cannabis only in the form of Delta 8. I've found it's the one I can function with the best. DPH, to me, is still a very interesting drug. Deliriums in general are, such as Datura, but given all the reports, I don't intend on ever trying that poison. DPH has shown me what delirium looks and feels like. I now feel more empathy towards those suffering from psychotic and neurodegenerative disorders like schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, and dementia. I would strongly recommend that you don't commit the same mistake I made. Since I had no tolerance for the drug at the time, I could have very likely died. To this day, I consider myself lucky to not have gotten a seizure, respiratory depression, or worse. DPH is not a substance to take lightly. It is powerful. It is frightening. It is a nightmare. I wish I had never found that meme. Just maybe I would never have experienced this in the first place. So please, be safe. Don't do dumb. And don't take advice from a frog in a meme. I drank a fairly average amount during high school in my first two years of college. I didn't like to party, but I did love getting drunk with friends. I'm a husky guy I can handle a lot of liquor at once, but I never exhibited any problem behavior. That all changed very quickly. The summer of 2017, right before I moved back to Arkansas for my third year of college, my parents got divorced. In the fall, my dad got a debilitating brain infection and I dropped out of school to move home and be closer to my family. I moved in with my girlfriend of four years, who then broke up with me and kicked me out a month later. So there I was, a broken-hearted 20-year-old guy with a newly shattered family, back in my shitty hometown. So I started drinking. Hard. I had a fake ID that I rarely used back in college. I was too scared to try it at bars or liquor stores, but in my hometown they sold hard liquor at grocery stores, so I started buying bottles of cheap whiskey that I chug every night to numb the pain. In the spring, my dad was doing better, so I went back to school and moved back in with my friends. I turned 21 soon after that, and all bets were off. I drank like a cartoon character for the next two whole years, almost comical amounts of alcohol. My friends and I were embracing the college burnout lifestyle, especially in the summer, when it wasn't uncommon for each of us to put away a bottle of whiskey and a six-pack every day. Eventually, my friends started to grow up and clean up their act, but I didn't. I knew I wasn't going to finish school. My family had no money left. I got a job as a kitchen manager at a pizza place slash craft brewery, so free pizza and beer every night caused me to really start packing on the pounds. In late 2019, my dad had a really bad stroke due to lasting complications from his brain infection. I decided to move back home once again, this time taking my new girlfriend with me. We ended up living with my mom and her new boyfriend. Soon afterwards, COVID hit. This is when my drinking got really bad, because I had to hide it. I went from being a free adult drinking whenever I wanted to being back under my mommy's roof. Her and my girlfriend could both tell I had a problem, so they began watching me more closely, which resulted in more private trips to the gas station to buy Gatorade, which really meant 4 or 5 airplane shots and a Gatorade to cover up my breath. This continued until I started to notice negative physical effects. I started getting sick to my stomach all the time, and throwing up became an almost daily occurrence. In August 2020, I was helping my mom do a landscaping gig at a bar, and I got caught on camera stealing liquor from behind the bar when I would go inside for breaks. After this, I went to rehab for the first time. I was there for three weeks, one in detox and two in the chemical dependency unit. 
They put me on all kinds of mood stabilizers, which I didn't need, and stopped taking once I got out, but they did put me on Seroquel, which was a saving grace at the time, but later turned out to be a huge mistake. I had always had sleeping problems, which was part of the reason I drank so heavily at night. What I didn't know was that Seroquel is dangerously addictive. Anyway, I stayed clean for about two months before my girlfriend broke up with me, and I relapsed immediately. It was bad for a few weeks, but eventually I got to a point where I was drinking like a regular human being again. Definitely still excessive, but it wasn't all day every day. I could go out somewhere, have four drinks, and be satisfied. It was definitely progress. In the next few months, I got over my last ex very quickly and started dating an old friend that I'm miraculously still with today. A few months into our relationship, she announces that she accepted a job in Austin, Texas, and that she'd be moving there in May. I agreed to move with her, but decided to wait until August so I could stay at my job and save money. Big mistake. The moment she left, the stress drinking came back in full force and completely took over my life. It was back to all day every day. I was a pizza delivery driver at this point, and I was essentially getting paid to drink and drive. I got into three separate accidents on the job, only one of them involved another car, but it totaled mine. It still blows my mind that I didn't hurt anyone or myself. My car was always overflowing with empty shooter bottles and tall boys. During this time, my anxiety got so bad that I convinced my psychiatrist to prescribe me clonopin. I was never into taking benzos to get high, I just felt like at this point I needed the real deal to help calm my constant nerves. This ultimately made things worse, as I was now on two extremely addictive medications that, coupled with my alcoholism, made for some seriously dark withdrawal episodes. By the end of the summer, I had been hospitalized twice for dehydration, vitamin deficiencies, and low kidney and liver function. The second time, they did an endoscopy and found several ulcers in my esophagus and yeast infection at the entrance to my stomach. They had me detox for a few days, gave me a bunch of meds for the ulcers and infection, and told me I had to quit drinking. Obviously, I never took the meds and went out drinking the night they discharged me. When I moved to Austin, I knew I had to get things under control, and I did, for a couple months. Then, my dad had yet another stroke. I couldn't move back home again, I had practically just gotten here. So there I was, living in a brand new city and knowing that my dad was back in the hospital 14 hours away. I gave up, I started drinking in a more savage, pathetic manner than I ever had. My girlfriend thought I had quit drinking after the second hospitalization, so I had to hide everything from her. Eventually, she knew what was going on, but we never spoke about it. I got sicker and sicker, rapidly. The main problem was my stomach. I was always so nauseous that I could never stomach most foods. I could also no longer stomach most hard liquor, so I was reduced to constantly chugging the strongest and cheapest malt liquor I could find, flavored steel reserve or four loco, supplemented with fireball and hard seltzers. By December 2021, I had the same daily routine. I would wake up at 5 a.m., shake and sweat profusely until 7 a.m. when places started selling alcohol, when I would go to the gas station. I would get three tall boys and sit in the parking lot, alternating between drinking them and throwing them back up for about an hour. I would then go home, try and then fail to go back to sleep, then repeat this process one more time. When it was time to go to work, I would buy a 10-pack of fireball shots and a 6-pack of White Claws to hide in my backpack and drink in the bathroom throughout the night. I would usually have to excuse myself to throw up 10 times per shift as well, meaning I was damn near useless on the job. 
I would get a few more tall boys on the way home, which I would drink and then throw back up. Then I would lay in bed in agony until I finally fell asleep for an hour or two, then started all over again. I had completely given up on water, and I had mostly given up on food. At one point, I didn't even attempt to eat for four days. I couldn't even get drunk anymore because I could barely digest the alcohol, so I was in a state of constant withdrawal. My anxiety and sleeping meds stopped working entirely, but my symptoms would get a million times worse when I ran out of them. My heart rate was always at around 120, and I was just waiting for that heart attack to come. Because I wasn't getting any food or water, just malt liquor and fireball, the only nutrient my body was getting was sugar, so my shit and piss smelled like rotting fruit. I was completely malnourished, but I had swelled up to 265 pounds and was practically unrecognizable to people who had known me just two years prior. Every night I got stuck in hypnagogia, the state between awake and asleep, and it turned my nights into a hellish whirlwind of altered reality and stressful half-dreams. At one point I had a vivid sleep paralysis episode where I could hear my girlfriend having sex with another guy in our living room, but I couldn't move or scream to do anything about it. At that point I wouldn't have been surprised or even mad if she was cheating because I turned into a complete shell of my former self and a nightmare to live with. I finally realized that there was a 0% chance of me being able to pull myself out of this, so I checked into rehab for the second time. I have now been clean from alcohol and benzos for a year and a half, and I now take trazodone for my sleep problems instead of Seroquel. My life is a million times better, my relationship is a million times happier, but I'm still stricken with anxiety about the damage I've done to my body. It took me a long time to realize that I had a severe eating disorder on top of my addiction, and all that puking has left me with near-permanent heartburn, not just acid reflux, the kind that makes you go to the ER because you think you're finally having that heart attack before they explain to you that your esophagus is just in really bad shape. I also now have extreme anxiety towards driving, and can't really drive for more than 45 minutes without starting to dissociate, then panic. I am so thankful for my health and the fact that I somehow didn't completely destroy my liver, but knowing the amount of damage I've done to my body has left me with a permanently paranoid outlook on life. Before I begin, I want to emphasize that this is my experience on Lexapro. Lexapro has helped many people in the past. This is not me bashing the medication. I am now on Zoloft, Clonidine, and Welbutrin, and I am doing much better. Antidepressants and other psychiatric medications do amazing things. I simply had an adverse reaction that was not handled correctly. This story happened in 2020-2021 when I was 15 to 16 years old before I knew I was autistic. Back then I had never done any type of drug, though now I do use edibles and have done shrooms, which were amazing by the way. When I was put on Lexapro, it happened because of an impulse suicide attempt. I have always had mental health issues, specifically with dissociation and some of the most awful intrusive thoughts. Not the, I'm gonna cut my hair intrusive, the, I should smash my face into the concrete right now type. It would feel like something would take over me and fight for the control of my body. I experienced tactile hallucinations, the most common being bugs under my skin, which eventually led to self-harm in an effort to get rid of the bugs. I had a very unstable childhood which affected my tastes and future partners. This is important. COVID affected everyone in very different ways. I slept most of the day and stayed up most of the night talking to my friends on Discord. It started during spring break of my freshman year. Throughout that time, I was manipulated into sending explicit pictures of myself. 
It started with pics of me in a bra and eventually escalated into full nudity. Let's call this person S. I felt so disgusting. My now ex had a crush on me since he first met me. Let's call him V. V was a horrible person. To this day, what V has done affects me greatly. When I had broken up with S, V swooped in immediately. Due to my struggles with depersonalization, my memory was horrible. I only saw the present and had more or less forgotten what had passed. V began to pay extra attention to me, staying on calls late at night with me and talking to me. My dumbass thought that if someone gives me attention, I should like them. We eventually got together and on that first night, he told me that he had fantasized about shooting up our school. Many people wonder why I didn't end things on the spot, and so do I. Jokes aside, I'd become so afraid of leaving him and feared that he would do something to himself or others, or me. He started by being very sweet, which I now know was love bombing. That's when the grooming started. I must emphasize that due to my heavy derealization, I was hardly lucid. I was so far removed from myself that time had become like a gray sludge. Life was so bleak and I was lonely, so I thought that what he was doing was normal. The more the relationship progressed, the more he talked about a serious desire to kill and eat someone. He constantly made up stories about a character murdering and dismembering people in the most gruesome ways. I was very much afraid of him. The sexual experiences between us progressed much farther than I had ever wanted and eventually I was coerced into having sex. It wasn't enjoyable. I wanted it to end and was happy when it did. It felt really weird afterwards, but this being my first time having sex, I thought it was normal. A few days later when I was walking to my house from the bus, I very distinctly remember thinking to myself in a brief moment of total awareness, oh fuck, I could feel something horrible coming, I'm going to spiral, and I did. What followed was possibly one of the worst months of my entire life until that point. I was more erratic and irritable, my self-harm increased dramatically and my intrusive thoughts filled my brain. At the end of that November, I tried to kill myself. Well, my brain told me to drown myself and I was suddenly stuck underwater. It happened out of nowhere. As soon as I ripped myself back out of the bath, I just started bawling. I later confided in my therapist that I had attempted by impulse. Of course, my mom had to get involved and everything went to shit. I went to the hospital and waited nearly four hours for a psychological exam that lasted five minutes. I was barely awake because the doctor didn't reach me until 2am. They basically ended up telling me that I wasn't suicidal enough to be admitted to the hospital, all because I said I wanted to go to one that wasn't connected to their system. You know how normally it can take several months to years to get a psychiatric evaluation from a psychiatrist? They got me in within a week due to emergency reasons. Crazy how they can just do that. Anyways, it was early December when I had my first appointment with my psychiatrist. I didn't feel like I had talked to him enough about my symptoms because we only had an hour and a half. Despite this, he prescribed me Lexapro. I took 5mg for a week and then took my full dose, 10mg, following that week. I started to feel pretty nice and calm mostly, but little did I know that I was about to begin the actual worst months of my life. It started very gradually. At first, I just felt tired all the time, like uncontrollably tired. I was on the dance team and had started falling asleep during practice when I needed to quickly sit down due to my knee hurting. This got me in lots of trouble. I started to fall asleep in Zoom classes and eventually in my in-person classes as well. I was actually voted most likely to fall asleep in class for the yearbook that year. It's all shits and giggles until you find out I was severely over-medicated and on the wrong meds the whole time. The next thing I noticed is that I started to lose feeling in my limbs. I would grab my arm and I would barely feel it, and what I felt wasn't from me, if that makes any sense. 
When I walked, I felt like I was floating. I could hardly feel my feet touch the ground. This sounds amazing on the surface, but the worst part is what happened within my mind. The anxiety that it was meant to be treating was replaced by this overwhelming, indescribable emptiness. I felt nothing. I wasn't happy. I wasn't sad. I wasn't angry. Everything was gray. I couldn't even recognize myself in the mirror. No matter how long I stared, I could not register that it was me. I'd become a shell of myself. I appeared better on the outside, but it was just me masking how I felt so I can fit in better. Then I had my first encounter with the corner guy. He was a tall shadowy figure that always resided at the furthest corner from me. No matter the height of the roof, he would always be slightly too tall to fit so he was always hunched over. It got really scary when the roofs were super high. He had a head and eyes and that's about all the discernible features he had. From the shoulders down, he was just a tall black shadow. I couldn't see him as much as I could feel him watching me. I just automatically knew what he looked like. I felt his presence and could make him out wherever I was. My paranoia skyrocketed. The bugs under my skin returned more noticeable than ever. There was one specific night where I cut myself where my underwear would be on my thighs, that little spot where your legs and hips meet. I was listening to In a Year of 13 Moons by Curran Joyce as I sat on my bathroom floor feeling indescribably empty. I started to cut myself and after about the fifth or sixth cut I could hear my music fading. It started to become really hard to breathe and my ears were ringing. My vision went red and my brain was full of static. I came to and my music was at a totally different spot from where I left it. I then quickly crawled, I couldn't feel my legs, to my toilet and threw up. I still felt nothing. I laid down on my bathroom floor, still half naked and threw up some more. I felt more empty and heavy than ever. The only new thing I felt was an intense amount of guilt. Another memorable event started like any other day. I was stuck in bed and feeling nothing. I opened up Instagram and accidentally swiped to the camera. I saw myself, but it wasn't me. I barely recall what happened next and can only remember from archives. I ended up posting a string of selfies at the top of my face just staring at my camera in confusion. My ability to type was shot. I lost all coordination and all feeling in my body. My hands felt so far away from me that I could barely tell they were my own. This made me lose it. I just started to panic and that panic led into me just screaming at the top of my lungs. I couldn't control it. I was just screaming in complete distress. For anyone wondering why no one noticed, my mom was at work and my little brother had noise canceling headphones on playing Fortnite or something. After a while of just screaming and crying and not knowing what was going on, I started to feel alright. However, in some stroke of divine irony, my friend responded to one of my stories and said, Actually, you're not real, because it was a joke we had between ourselves. I went right back to freaking out because I truly believed him. I had another meeting with my psychiatrist. I told him that I didn't think the meds were working. All they did was make me feel tired and disconnected from myself. I wanted to get off of them and change to something else because I knew Lexapro wasn't working for me. Instead of changing the meds, I kid you not, he doubled my dose. I was now on 20 milligrams of Lexapro daily. Keep in mind, I am young and fairly small. I am very much a lightweight. 20 milligrams is the highest recommended dose for adults. Needless to say, I got worse. My delusions started to get really, really bad. I had believed I was some sort of experiment and everyone was in on it for a long time, like since I was eight. 
but it wasn't something that affected me too much because it wasn't at the forefront of my thoughts. However, I now fully believe that the government was stalking me and that they could hear everything I was thinking. I thought I was being watched and monitored at all times that everyone close to me were spies that were reporting everything that I did. I also thought I was stuck in purgatory, a coma, or a time loop. It really depended on the day. When you're in that state, you're not logical. After some time of thinking this, I started to fully believe that the only way to come back to real life was to kill myself in this reality. I thought I had been put in another bleak world and that I had to escape. This lasted for over a month. Thank God my mom stopped looking at my grades because they went to shit. When I had the next appointment with my psychiatrist, I told him all that I was thinking. The Lexapro stayed the same, but he also prescribed me Wellbutrin, which I am on to this day. He also said that it would be a good idea for me to go to the mental hospital for a bit for my own safety. Unfortunately, the hospital was full and they would not take me for two more weeks. It was also way too expensive for my family to afford comfortably. I now had two therapy sessions a week and very close monitoring for my mom. All the sharp objects had been hidden for a while now, but I could no longer shower with the door closed or anything like that. Despite all this, the Wellbutrin actually made me feel so much better. I didn't feel like a shell. I actually started to feel like a real person. The delusions remained the same, but I was more awake than I had been in months. Towards the end of my sophomore year, I met up with my psychiatrist and told him that I really need to get off Lexapro. I finally advocated for myself and he listened, switching me to Zoloft plus Clonidine for my insomnia and ADHD. This was fantastic news. Everything was great until he said, don't worry about weaning off of Lexapro. Since Zoloft and Lexapro do the same thing, you don't have to worry about it. I knew something wasn't right, but I did what he said since he's the professional. After getting off of Lexapro, I started to feel so much better. In fact, I felt amazing. I had so much energy and I had so many ideas and thoughts all the time. I didn't need to sleep and I was getting so much done. Everything was so colorful and lively, I felt like I was invincible. I wasn't getting better. I was hypomanic due to the sudden withdrawals combined with the adjustment period to Zoloft and Clonidine. At the time, I didn't think anything was wrong because I just felt great. I went back to harming myself because it gave me this buzz. It didn't sting or anything. It just gave me a rush. This was all good until I impulsively decided to just sneak out of school and get in a car full of random older guys I had never met because my friend knew them. We were stuck outside in the hot Texas sun for nearly two hours waiting for them. They finally came and we went to Target to hang out and do whatever. The guy ended up locking his keys in his car. We were stuck outside. Again. I almost passed out from the heat. I waited for another two hours until a friend could pick me up and drive me home. Once I got back, I went up to my room and just cried. I had snapped out of the episode and realized all that I had done. My legs were cut up. I had unsafe sexual encounters with V more times than I can count. We were still together at this point. My grades were awful, and now I had a nasty sunburn from being outside for forever. After the episode, everything started to get normal again. I was calmer, but not lethargic. I could recognize my reflection. The violent, intrusive thoughts gradually went away. I started to feel emotions. I felt whole again. About a year later, after V left me for another girl because I didn't want to have sex, I had finally connected my spiral with the first time doing it. I identified it as rape and it affected me heavily for a very long time. 
My struggles with mental health are something that I can never get rid of. I'll have to learn how to live with my brain, not against it. Self-harm is still an almost daily intrusive thought, but it's quiet now. I still feel my corner guy sometimes, but he isn't so real to me anymore. He lost his power over me. Whenever I get upset or frustrated, I still feel the bugs, but I have learned safe ways to cope with my urges to self-harm. I have so much work to do in myself. I am never done growing. Even though that era of my life was beyond awful, I wouldn't go back and change it. That doesn't mean I would do it again. It hurt me and I am permanently impacted by everything that happened, but it's made me who I am today. I am much happier now and have achieved so many great things. I am a very successful artist, winning an extremely prestigious award for one of my pieces, placing me in the top 150 high school artists in my state. I made the varsity dance team of only 18 dancers and we won the first runner-up in our category nationally. Despite all my struggles, I am so glad that I am alive right now. To anyone who is considering suicide, please reach out for help. Even if you don't feel love from those around you, you are so loved by all the survivors of hardships like your own. You are never alone, even if it feels like it. Given the fact that I am still alive today, I feel it my responsibility to report on the hell that has been the past few days. It is my hope that my first-hand experience with this malevolent substance can add to the canon of evidence regarding these incidents and, hopefully, help our community determine what went wrong. Everything I am writing is based upon my best recollection, which is severely altered, so please bear with me. As, hopefully, all know by now, something terribly, horribly toxic was packaged by Haupt RC, sold as 2CB Fly, and distributed to an unknown quantity of purchasers around the world in the last two weeks. I, unfortunately, was one of the people who received a nice little letter from Denmark containing the faux 2CB Fly. Let's call it Chemex. I placed my order on September 28th. I received an email from Mr. Haupt on October 1st stating that my order would be mailed that same day. On Wednesday, October 7th, I received the envelope in Barcelona, Spain, and went directly into the drawer of my desk and was not touched until Saturday, October 10th. On this day, at approximately 1.45pm, I broke out the Chemex and some other recent purchases, the comparatively benign MDAI and JWH-073, in order to confirm their weight. I weighed first the MDAI and JWH-073. I used a milligram scale with a small circular metal tray. After I weighed each substance, I poured the weighed material back into its original bag, tapping the rear of the tray as best as I could to remove all residual powder. Of course, there is always a fine layer of material left behind. Finally, I opened the bag of 1000 milligrams of Chemex and began to pour it into the tray. The first thing that struck me was the immense volume that such a weight occupied. In comparison with the previously weighed substances, each of whose 1000 milligrams easily fit in the scale's tray, the Chemex was extremely fluffy. It was much fluffier than any other 2Cs I had been in contact with as well. In addition, it was a fine powder but with small clumps throughout the bag. I could only fit approximately 700 milligrams on the tray at once, so I weighed the bag in two goes. 700 milligrams the first time and the remaining 300 milligrams the second time. The bag weighed perfectly. Mr. Haupt, God rest his soul, was an honest, if ill-prepared chemical salesman. I replaced as much of the Chemex as I could into its bag, the same one featured in this photo. 
So at 2 p.m., in a moment of heightened ignorance, I wiped all the Chemex residue onto my finger, enough to turn the tip of my index finger white and lipped it. That is to say, I wiped the material into the inside of my mouth opposite the lower lip. Additionally, I picked up a small clump of Chemex that had fallen on the table and put it under my tongue. Though I really have no accurate manner of judging it, I believe I may have ingested anywhere from 1 to 5 milligrams of the substance. That is my best estimate. Though it may have been more, I really have no idea. At an hour and 15 minutes in, my friend came over to my house. I told him I had lipped some of this material and I was feeling a bit weird. Not tripping, but feel like I had a bunch of weird drugs working their way through my system. He noted that I looked a bit fucked up when he arrived. He suggested that I may be because I had combined residual amounts of MDAI, JWH-073, and Chemex. I agreed and thought nothing more of it. At an hour and 45 minutes in, we smoked a king-size spliff comprised of approximately a third gram of Moroccan hash and 20 milligrams weight of JWH-073, evenly distributed through the tobacco of one cigarette. I noticed smoking the joint got me much higher than normal, and I'm a daily marijuana user. I'd also previously tested the JWH-073 without experiencing a similar reaction. The feeling was not so much the lazy, heavy stoneness of the Moroccan chocolate, nor the spacey dopey high of the JWH-073, but rather I began losing my train of thought easily and it was rather difficult to speak. We finished smoking and went to the store to get some food, water, and snacks. When I was in the grocery store, I had no idea what I should be getting, even though it was Saturday and I needed to buy my food for that day and the following. Stores are closed Sunday here. I ended up with an odd assortment of soft beverages and random snack foods. We walked back to my house and on the way I noticed it felt very off to be walking. There was a feeling in my feet that made every step feel unnatural. Once we made it back to my house, the intensity was still approximately the same as it had been since we smoked. I couldn't say I was tripping, but it felt like there were some really weird drugs pulsing through my system. I prepared a pizza from a fresh crust with olive oil, tomato, cheese, bacon, and goat cheese. I put it in the oven and my friend and I began watching a TV episode in the living room. While it was baking, I began noting my first hints of visuals looking at the walls of the living room and the abstract paintings that are hung there. By three hours in, I could barely cut the pizza, let alone eat it. The medallions of goat cheese appear to be morphing white cesspools on a bed of brown flesh and bubbling blood. Somehow, I got myself to eat two or three pieces. It tasted good, though after I had done so, my stomach began aching quite a bit. My friend went home to take a siesta, and from here is when things get blurry. From this point, it is very difficult for me to describe or categorize the way I was feeling, but I'll do my best. I said okay and goodbye, but barely noticed when he left. We were supposed to meet with some friends at a bar at 11 o'clock that night. That didn't happen. I put the Beatles rubber sole on my iTunes and laid down on the sofa. All I wanted to do was not move and keep my eyes closed. The music sounded pretty good and soon incredible psychedelic scenes were unfolding beneath my eyelids. Such intense closed eye visuals I've never experienced before. During this time, my mom called for my home country and I didn't answer because I was too fucked up. That could have been my last chance to talk to her. Thank God, though, it wasn't. Kids, always answer your mom's phone calls. I continued feeling more and more lethargic. I was in a state somewhere between sleep and consciousness when my roommate came into the living room and roused me. He began talking to me in Spanish. I could barely comprehend what he was saying, let alone start speaking to him. I told him as best as I could that last night was rough, that I wasn't feeling well and I needed to rest. I must have looked crazy and horribly fucked up. I went into my room and laid down on my bed. The music was still playing, but it sounded really loud. 
I couldn't even bring myself to reach over and turn it down. For the next hour, I was in a nearly catatonic state, unable and not wanting to move. Eyes closed the whole time, I couldn't keep them open. However, the effects kept getting worse. Not in a linear manner, but rather in what seemed an exponential manner. It was 23 degrees Celsius, 74 degrees Fahrenheit outside, yet I was freezing. I was under all of the covers in my bed, yet I began sweating immensely. I couldn't tell if I was awake or sleeping, conscious or unconscious. It seemed I was somewhere in between the two. This scared me a bit. At approximately five hours in, I began getting really worried, so I forced myself to sit up, decided to take a hot shower to see if that would help. It didn't. I was still extremely flushed, cold, and perspiring what seemed like gallons of sweat. Mentally, I was a bit delirious, not like psychedelic conscious shifting, but in an uncontrollable disoriented sort of way. Then, about 15 minutes later, I logged online and searched Google. I came upon Arrowhead and my heart dropped when I saw the photo of the exact same bag that was sitting on my desk. I became angry, agitated, and threw the bag and some stuff off my desk. A violent reaction like this is not my character at all. Then I posted the following in blue light. I may have accidentally ingested some of this about five and a half hours ago. Help, what do I do? Thankfully, the board instantly made me realize the gravity of the situation, especially Delsomfan, who said there was about a six hour delay before things got really bad. He was 100% right. I threw on clothes and shoes as quickly as I could in my condition, put the bag of Chemex in my pocket, and began walking as fast as I could to the nearest subway station, about 700 meters. During this walk, I began feeling amazing pulses of energy coming through my brain, but not in a good way. It felt like there was a fireworks show going off in my head. These weird surges would continue randomly until the following day. They were very disturbing and concerned me that some major neurological damage may have been done. I must have looked like a lunatic, and I sure felt like one. I was completely out of it, walking through intersections with complete disregard for cross traffic. The weird feeling in my feet I mentioned earlier had intensified significantly, and I found myself questioning if I could make it to the hospital on my own. I was debating between calling an ambulance and taking the subway, but I finally reached the stop just as the train was arriving. In the metro, I don't remember anything, just dropping buckets of sweat everywhere. Effects were still getting stronger, and I was unsure if I'd be able to walk under my own power into the hospital. Finally, three stops later, I arrived to the hospital and, after nearly being hit by a bus crossing the street, ran into the emergency waiting room. I cut everyone in line, ran to the check-in desk, and began spitting out my story in Spanish as best as I could. The check-in nurse pointed to a staircase and said to go down there ASAP. I took myself into the triage area and explained again the story. The attending nurses were freaking out over the whole thing. I wrote down on a piece of paper the name of Haupt, his website, Arrowid, the name of the supposed chemical, and blue light. I told them I had eaten contaminated 2CB fly and gave them the baggie. I was admitted and they put me in a wheelchair and rushed me to the ER. I could barely stand as I had to take off my clothes. They were so wet it felt like I had gone swimming in them. They put me in a gown and went to work. They connected 14 or more EKG probes all over my body to monitor my heart's functioning. They also brought some special type of cardiac monitoring machine, no idea the name, and hooked me up to it. They drew blood for analysis and gave me two diazepam, I think 10 milligrams each. The doctor told me all he could do was give me the diazepam, keep the monitors attached, and stand by in case they needed to intervene. The rest was on my body to fight through. I have to say there was a good period there where I didn't feel like I was going to make it. 
Finally, the diazepam began to ease my extreme tachycardia and lower the blood pressure. However, there was some worry as my diastolic blood pressure began dropping below 60 as my systolic stayed high. Don't know what it means, but the docs were a bit worried. Thank God it passed. Now, diazepam is known for killing trips, but it merely dulled this one. The visuals and delirium persisted through the dosage of Valium, though it did sedate me a bit. I truly believe the diazepam, given to me when it was, helped prevent me from suffering major cardiovascular issues, as I had troubling levels of tachycardia and blood pressure, exact numbers I don't know. In fact, I believe it may be a major reason why I am still here today to write this report. For the next few hours, I don't remember much. Just the screams and unpleasant noises from the ER seemed amplified in volume and magnified in the way they disturbed me. The open-eyed visuals continued distorting objects for hours. I thought a lot about how this would be such a horrible way to go, especially for my family and friends. What would it do to them for me to leave them like that, over something so stupid, preventable, and, especially, without telling them goodbye and that I loved them? I was determined to walk out of that hospital. I'm not a religious man, but by God, I prayed my ass off that night. At approximately 14 and a half hours in, the doctor told me he was discharging me. I told him I didn't think I was ready to go, but he told me that if I had made it this far, that I would be okay. Unsure, thinking of how Halp died so far into his trip after sleeping, I reluctantly agreed and began to get ready to go home. I still felt awful, like I should be dead. I could still barely walk and I was mentally out of it. Somehow though, I made it home and posted an update on Blue Light. The hallucinations had mostly gone, but the psychological and physical effects maintained their toxic presence in my system. My posting accurately reflects how I was feeling. I don't know if high is the right way to put it, not right would be more accurate. Like, I'm not tripping, but I definitely still feel like I have poison inside of me. I didn't want to leave the hospital, but they made me. At that point, I still felt unsure I was going to be okay. I was still afraid to sleep because of what I'd read about Halp's passing, but finally I turned off the laptop and tried to get some sleep. I got a horrible night's sleep, maybe four and a half or five hours, of oft-interrupted slumber probably never got more than 30 consecutive minutes of sleep. At about 21 hours in, I woke up and lay in bed, feeling like I should be dead. Both my head and body felt absolutely awful, like I had been poisoned and that poison was still inside of me. A little while later, I called my friend Vita Verde and she told me to come over to her place right away. Since then, I have been under her watchful eye and she has been the most amazing, wonderful friend and nurse anyone could ask for. At 24 hours in, she gave me 1 milligram clonazepam, and that really helped me. The rest of the day, I spent feeling not right. I don't know how to explain it. It really is impossible to describe. I didn't feel like myself. I could still feel the Chemex just marinating in my system doing bad things. I didn't move from her couch nearly the whole day, and the time just passed by without me noticing. I felt horrible physically. I felt like I shouldn't be here. At 34 hours in, I took another 1 milligram clonazepam and proceeded to fall asleep on Vita Verde's sofa. I was out within 3 minutes and didn't wake up for almost 11 hours. When I woke up about 45 hours in, I felt refreshed physically, but my brain still felt odd. Now, at nearly 50 hours in, though physically feeling stronger, I still don't feel right. I'm sorry I can't be more specific, there's just no way for me to verbalize the way my head feels. Physically, I'm still lethargic and without any motivation to do anything. It has taken me several hours to write this report. I have no appetite. 
Vita Verde has been giving me little bits of food and I've been eating it, but I have no physical nor mental urge to do so. I have been drinking a saline and electrolyte solution that has been helping a lot to replenish the salts and minerals I lost through the flushing and sweating. I still don't feel normal. I hope I do soon. Right now, I am thankful that I am alive and able to be here writing this report. Thanks to everyone at Blue Light for their advice, concern, and support. I am thankful for the hospital employees for trying to help me, and I am especially thankful for Vita Verde's companionship and support through this whole ordeal. The recovery would have been a lot worse if I had to suffer through it alone. Thanks to everyone, and I hope that this report may contribute in some way to understanding what exactly was in that batch of 2CB fly. It started as a typical weekend as a senior in high school. A few buddies and I camped for the night at Fossil Creek in northern Arizona. Nothing crazy. We spent the day swimming in the creek and had a bottle of Jack Daniels and five grams of bud to keep us entertained for the night. It was on the hike out of the canyon that things became interesting. As a drug-obsessed teenager, I not only tried my fair share of psychoactive substances, but had also studied the local flora for anything psychoactive. While hiking up the trail, I noticed a beautiful plant that I identified as Angel's Trumpet. I had looked into this plant just a little bit and couldn't recall much of what I had read. I just knew that the seed pods were the part that would make you trip. Being overconfident and completely foolhardy, I picked six seed pods off the plant and continued hiking back to my friend's car. When we arrived in the parking lot, I looked at my friends to see who wanted a trip with me on the Angel's Trumpet seeds. We had a couple hour car ride ahead of us back to Phoenix and I thought it would be fun to feel the come up and start tripping while we ventured home. It was a Sunday afternoon and my parents were going to be out of town until Monday morning. I figured I would have plenty of time to sober up from the trip before school or my parents returned. My friend Anthony, the most adventurous of the bunch, was the only one who wanted to take the seeds with me. Pussies, pussies, we joked with our buddies as we split the seed pods, three each, between ourselves. We emptied out the seeds onto napkins and looked at each other as we were about to unknowingly make the worst mistake of our lives. To this day, four years in the future, I still have nightmares about this experience and wish I could go back to this pivotal moment to stop myself. There were dozens of seeds in each of the napkins. We were so reckless and sure of ourselves that we didn't even bother to count them. Down the hatch, we swallowed them whole and washed the vile seeds back with orange Gatorade. We got into the back of my other friend's old Toyota 4Runner and hit the road back to Phoenix. It wasn't long before we started feeling the preliminary effects and I was feeling nervous about what we had done. My limbs were starting to go numb, my mouth was drier than hell, and an overwhelming sense of dread and remorse was beginning to chip away at the fragile edges of my teenage ego. The Arizona step scene out the window passed through my field of vision in a haze, and I looked into Anthony's face to gauge how he was reacting to the sinister medicine we had consumed. Face is an index of mind. The words of the Indian sage to a young Terence McKenna reverberated through my skull as I saw the same nervous yet controlled expression on Anthony's face that I was projecting onto mine. For the time being, we were okay, but my mind was racing as the uncomfortable side effects continued to mount in intensity. Had we poisoned ourselves? Was that even the right plant? I don't even remember what this drug is supposed to feel like. Why did I get us into this? All of this spun around and around in my head while I did my best to remain calm and not let on to any of my friends that I was on the verge of freaking out. 
At one point, I had my friend pull over on the side of the highway so I could piss. My bladder felt like it was going to burst from all the water we had been drinking during the hike out of the canyon and the orange Gatorades we drank for the Detura seeds. But as I stood on the side of the road with cars zipping by, I couldn't piss more than a few drops. It was the worst sensation of trying to force the pee out and even though I got out only a few drops, I strangely still felt relieved afterwards. By this point, the heavy body load, cotton mouth, and numbness in my arms and legs were in full effect, but Anthony and I weren't feeling much of anything in terms of psychoactive effects yet. We arrived back in Phoenix, and I was the first stop to be dropped off. I occasionally tripped acid and mushrooms alone back in these days, so my friends thought nothing of me being home alone for the rest of whatever this experience was going to be. If anything, they thought it was a good thing that my parents weren't around to catch me tripping on a random plant we found in the wilderness. I got out of the car, told Anthony to call me later that night so we could check in, and wave goodbye to my friends as I opened the garage door and stepped into my parents' empty house. From this point on, my memories of this experience are very fragmented and slippery. On a high dose of detura like Anthony and I took, Time ceases to be linear, fantasy and reality become intertwined and completely indistinguishable, and the tripper is brought to the brink of death to experience horrors and confusions that are too fantastic to encapsulate in English. I remember it being nighttime and I was outside in my backyard, sitting at the table next to the pool and smoking a joint with Anthony. We were shooting the shit, talking about nothing like we usually did during our smoke sessions, when out of the blue he said, look, in a serious alarmed tone. Under the patio light, I clearly saw the irises of his eyes morph into an orangish gill pattern like the underside of a psilocybin mushroom and his pupils the size of dinner plates, black voids leading to I knew not where. I craned my head around, following his gaze, and saw the outline of a woman standing in the darkness on the opposite side of the backyard. What do you want? I blurted out in a shaky voice. I quickly glanced back at Anthony to reassure myself and check his reaction but he was no longer there. I realized I wasn't sitting at the patio table or smoking a joint at all. The context had completely changed. I was standing at the edge of the backyard under the cool moonlight with my back up against the concrete block wall. The back door to the house was wide open and the woman still stood in the dark on the opposite side of the yard. Who are you? I asked again, feeling unbelievably terrified, more scared than I had ever felt in my life. She didn't reply, but I mentally felt a response of, there is no need to fear, as a flood of both disturbing and beautiful hallucinations came rushing over me. A river of violet energy crashed out of the sky like water and rushed around me and threw me in a violent torrent. I felt I could barely stand, and I saw the strangest hallucinatory fragments flash through my mind. Demons peeking around windows, their bulging white eyes darting side to side in search of something. Tibetan Buddhists chanting in a monastery at the top of a windy, snow-covered mountain. The gears inside the engine of an alien spacecraft flying high above my backyard, observing my reaction and the contents of my mind. These images kept coming and coming, and I remember in flashes being able to actually see myself and the woman standing there in the backyard from a third-person, aerial perspective. After this episode of intense and delirious hallucination, I regained consciousness sitting in the dark in the middle of the backyard. I was extremely agitated, confused, and afraid, but otherwise felt relatively sober. 
This is just one of the sinister effects of Detura. You snap in and out of lucidity unpredictably throughout the experience, and there is never a clear I'm coming up or it's wearing off feeling to judge. I walked back into the house via the wide open door and frantically tried to reconstruct what I had been doing for the past several hours that I had no recollection of. I walked to my bedroom and to my horror upon opening the door, my mom and dad were seated on my bed staring at me fixedly. Their faces were distorted and blurry and my dad looked right through me and shouted, what are you on? In a voice that pierced the very essence of my being. I recoiled and turned away, knowing that I was busted, but when I turned back to reply, my parents were no longer there. The room was empty, the house was completely quiet. I stood frozen in the doorway, hearing only the blood rush through my body and a slight ringing in my ears, completely confused and overwhelmed by the entire experience. At some point in the silence, I heard the distant sound of multiple cars turning onto my street and slamming the brakes in front of my house. I was already paranoid beyond belief and raced to the living room to peer out the window and see who or what had come to visit me in the middle of the night. My heart sank as I saw two squad police cars parked right outside my driveway and an officer standing out in the road under the streetlight. Without even thinking, my immediate reaction was to flee the house and get as far away as possible. I ran out the back door and hopped the fence into my neighbor's backyard. The detour had severely impaired my motor skills and where I'd usually be able to hop the fence with no problem, I could now barely get myself up and over. From my neighbor's backyard, I went through their gate and kept running through neighborhoods until I reached the edge of the desert. This escape is like a fog of paranoia and insanity in my memory. I was running for my life through people's property and I'm sure causing a ridiculous amount of commotion and noise in the dead quiet of a suburban Sunday night. My pursuers were morphing like a liquid in my mind. They started as the police, but at times I was running from demons or the idea of evil itself. I heard people on foot running after me. I would turn back while running and see pitch black shadow people in the distance. I heard the beat of big leather wings behind my right shoulder. I irrationally thought that if I made it to the desert, I'd be able to evade whoever was after me and hide out until daylight, but in reality I had no clue where I was going or what I was doing. I had grown up in the area and knew every street like the back of my hand, but that night I would turn onto a familiar street and suddenly find myself in a different neighborhood altogether. Streets looped and repeated themselves. I would look down into the distance and see something random and impossible. I saw a middle-aged man laying out on a lawn chair, tanning himself even though it must have been 2 or 3 in the morning. He lifted his sunglasses to look at me and gave me a wink before laying back down. I saw gigantic moths swarming around a streetlight and inexplicable lights in the sky. Everything was a fear-ridden blur. The next thing I remember is being restrained to a gurney and loaded in the back of an ambulance. The EMT looked down at me and had the head of a man and the body of a snake. It looked like the sun was setting behind his head. What did you take? He asked in a demanding tone. Through my cracked lips and parched mouth, I managed to reply, Angel's Trumpet. I looked down at my body and saw that my legs were covered in cuts and bruises. My shirt was ripped and filthy with dirt. It felt like an eternity passed on the ride to the hospital. I was confused as if to I was being taken to the hospital, to jail, or being abducted by aliens. 
I later learned that at one point I asked the EMT why they were abducting me and when I could go back to Earth. I said all kinds of crazy things in conversation with the EMTs and people that I imagined to be present. In my mind, Anthony, or something that was impersonating Anthony, was in the ambulance with me for most of the ride and was acting like a guardian spirit. He would point to or pick up different medical devices in the back of the ambulance and explain what they did or how they were used. I would look down at my hands and see that I was holding a copy of whatever thing he was explaining to me and then I would snap out of it and realize I was still bound to the gurney. There was an analog clock on the wall and while Anthony was explaining it to me, it morphed into the wheel of samsara. I saw beings going through the never-ending cycle of birth and death, being born as animals, dying and reborn as angels, taking human births and being born as my family and friends. It was an endless cycle all revolving around this wheel of existence within the clock. I felt as if I had died and was being held in some kind of waiting room, a transition place between worlds. Arriving at the hospital did nothing to sober me up. In fact, it took the better part of a week for me to return to my typical waking consciousness. The doctors forced me to drink a disgusting activated charcoal concoction, which must have been a complete waste since it had been hours since I had eaten the detura seeds. They pumped me full of sedatives, antipsychotics, and other drugs to relieve my severe urinary retention and tachycardia. They also inserted a catheter, which was as horrifying as you would expect while under the influence of detura. I won't even describe that horror here, and will instead leave it to your imagination. Under sedation, my delirium continued and I phased in and out of waking consciousness with varying levels of lucidity. At some point, my parents arrived home from their vacation and had to return to their son seemingly on the brink of death, lying insane in a hospital bed. I will never forgive myself for putting them through that stress and all of the trouble I caused from this stupid decision. In my sedated delirium, intense hallucinations continued as I fought for my sanity. A black Labrador came in and out of my hospital room, and the jingling of his collar would trigger waves of visions and views through poison kaleidoscopes behind my closed eyes. I could see him trotting through the hospital and his tail wagging back and forth as he passed the rooms full of suffering mankind. Any room he lingered on was an ill omen of that person's approaching death. I had the impression that Anthony was with me during this part of the trip. He was no longer acting as a guardian spirit like he was in the ambulance, but instead was by my bedside, or in the hospital bed next to mine, or standing out in the hallway on the threshold of the room. It wasn't until later that I learned that Anthony had been hospitalized as well earlier in the night. After Anthony was dropped off at home, it wasn't long before he started hallucinating and acting strangely. His mom caught him talking to imaginary people in their kitchen, wildly gesticulating and saying things that didn't make any sense. Anthony later said that he thought he was being interrogated by federal agents about his involvement in the local drug trade. Anthony was a low-level weed dealer at her high school and was always very paranoid about being caught. When confronted by his mom as to who he was talking to, he panicked and tried to run out of the house. She caught up to him fumbling with the lock on the front door, and when she tried to restrain him and calm him down, he turned around and punched her square in the face, thinking that she was one of the agents trying to arrest him. After that, the actual police were called, and Anthony was restrained and transported to the same hospital I would be admitted to several hours later. 
After our stay in the hospital and return to relative normalcy, Anthony and I were both sent to a psychiatric ward in a 72-hour involuntary hold. It took almost a week for me to feel normal again. I thought my eyes were never going to heal and I worried that I'd given myself permanent psychosis. In the days that followed, I saw gnomes marching across the floor in the psych ward like little ants. I would stare at them for minutes, observing them closely, then briefly look away, and when I looked back, they had vanished. Small hallucinations like that and tricks played in my peripheral vision continued far longer than I ever wanted. This experience placed a permanent strain on my relationship with Anthony and my parents. I felt I had let everyone down with this stupid decision and ruined our lives. I remember standing under the hot water in the shower, staring down into the drain and feeling the water flow over my skin like rubber and thinking that things were never going to be normal again. This experience was four years ago now, in April of 2019, and things did eventually turn out alright. With time, my vision and mind repaired themselves and my parents forgave me. In August of that year, both Anthony and I went off to different colleges and have since lost touch. I thank God that no one was seriously injured or killed. After the fact, I learned from my parents that the police had never been called to our house and that instead multiple people in the area had called because I was making so much noise during my frantic flight from the demons in the middle of the night. Taking Datura rips apart the fabric of our consensus reality and exposes the tripper to the spirit realm, but what you find there is not at all pleasant or harmless, especially if you are as unprepared and naive as I was. It is much more a glimpse of hell than of heaven, and I now feel that I have permanently opened a door that cannot be shut in this lifetime. I frequently dream about this ordeal and have flashbacks to the visions I experienced that night. I still feel that woman standing in the darkness, observing my life from a distance and occasionally showing herself in my dreams to this day. Before I begin, this report is going to be super long because it documents the past few agonizing years addicted to this. I also want to say a few things about Kratom that you need to know. Kratom is definitely a dangerous drug that gets you high. No, it's not dangerous like oxys, perks, or whatever kind of hard drug is out there. It's dangerous in the sense of its subtlety. You wouldn't expect a legal drug that you can buy at a head shop to be this controlling over your everyday life. I'm not saying that you will get addicted like me, but there's definitely a possibility and I'm writing this story in hopes to keep you away from this devil of a drug. Another thing I have to say is that there's a common misconception that Kratom doesn't get you high, that it's just a mood boost or even nothing at all. Now that might be true for some people, but for me, I could definitely feel the euphoria and stimulation. If you take high doses like me, you will feel high, trust me, I'm high as fuck right now typing this. There are also people who can get hepatotoxicity from it. Usually you would know if you had this if it happens right after you start. Jaundice is the main thing you will notice appearance-wise if this were to happen to you. Luckily, this hasn't happened to me yet and doesn't really happen to that many people. I think people are afraid of this phenomenon because there are a lot of stories on the internet of people describing how they got hepatotoxicity from Kratom. The reason behind this, in my opinion, is because what happened to them is so crazy that they need to make sure all the internet needs to know. That's just what I believe. The last thing I want to say about Kratom is something positive. I think Kratom can be very beneficial to people who are going through opioid, alcohol, or benzo withdrawal. 
I think it can help you get off of that much more dangerous substance and put you on something that is still bad, but not nearly as bad as those. The risk in that though is that if you were addicted to the previous substance, you will 100% be addicted to Kratom. Like I said though, out of those four, Kratom is the least harmful. So the only reason I would recommend this drug would be for people already suffering through horrible addictions and withdrawals. I've read lots of stories of opioid addicts switching to Kratom and it being a lifesaver for them. Now that I've explained my views on the substance, let me take you on a journey through my ongoing abusive relationship with Kratom. Before I talk about how I got to using it, I want to tell you what or who influenced me to do it in the first place. I had a friend in high school who I'm no longer friends with and I'm glad I'm not. He was addicted to Kratom and we were all doing drugs at that time so I wasn't really concerned with his use. Come to think of it now though I'm probably more addicted than he ever was. I remember in one of the classes I had with him, he would bring a bottle of water and put a shit ton of Kratom powder in it, mix it up and then drink it. Ugh, so nasty, the taste was awful. No one questioned him drinking a green liquid because he was a health nut vegan who would lie and say it was spirulina if anyone asked. I was never interested in taking it after watching him drink those disgusting green waters, but one day we were at a head shop and he was going to buy some. I said fuck it and I'll try it. He was super excited that I wanted to try the Kratom, but looking back now, if he was anything close to a good friend, he should have said no. I remember the Kratom clear as day. It was a tiny bottle with 15 capsules inside. It was pretty expensive too, but it was not an extract. I think it was just more potent than normal Kratom. He gave me seven and he took eight. I was so excited to be high and see what he was raving about this whole time. We were hanging out for a little while after this and I wasn't feeling anything, so I called BS on his claims. But then, I went home and I immediately felt it. I was so stimulated and euphoric, it almost felt like an Adderall. When I laid down on my bed, I felt so good and I knew I wanted to do this again. Since I'm already dragging the story along, I'll just skip ahead to how I got to the level I'm at today. So basically, the first time I tried Kratom that I described previously was in 2017. I didn't really use Kratom that much up until 2019. I would take it two to three times a week and I used it only for when I was going out or going somewhere I didn't feel like going. I do remember one time I took Kratom before I went to my girlfriend's house and decided to take 10 grams of it and my regular dosage, mind you, was 5 to 6 grams. I was so messed up at her house and it was so hard for me to hide it, but I did. I was shaking and my vision was wobbling so bad and I had major anxiety. Trying to talk to her dad was like speaking in front of thousands of people in an audience. I was that nervous. Luckily though, it wore off in a couple of hours and I was dressed nice. So hey, people who take drugs don't dress nice. Sarcasm. Skipping to the summer of 2019 is when the repeated use took place. I have a tiresome job and wanted the day to be more fun. I decided I would take Kratom halfway through my day to get me through the last couple of hours. Honestly, remembering this moment of my Kratom addiction makes me really sad because at this point I wasn't balls deep into abuse. I was just taking around 7-8 grams once a day. To some people that might seem like a lot already, but compared to what I'm going to tell you later, it's nothing. I basically did this routine every day until one time I decided to take a second dose to finish off the day and take the first dose earlier. It was the same dosage but just doing it one more time. This decision was the one I regret the most out of all the other decisions I've made during this time. 
This is also around the time I started getting panic attacks. I'm not sure if Kratom had anything to do with it because I was also drinking shitloads of caffeine too. I would doubt it if it wasn't at least 35% why I suffered these attacks. I did the two dose a day routine for months and for the first time in this whole experience, I knew I had a problem. I remember stopping cold turkey for a week and some change. I did not feel bad physically, but mentally I wanted it so bad. When I stopped taking it, I had an urge just to feel something, anything. I bought a jewel just to try and get a buzz and I never smoke whatsoever. I bought those energy boosters that come in a four pack at the gas station and boy, did my anxiety skyrocket. I got a panic attack from doing this and didn't take those pills again for a while. My dumbass still never learns though as I have done these pills probably around 10 more times since then and most of the time I get a panic attack and pray that I don't die. It's going to be hard to believe this next part, but believe me, it's very true. The feeling of nothing was draining me, so I resorted to taking a couple Advils to relieve my cravings of euphoria. As you may have guessed, I didn't feel shit and was just suffering. To my surprise though, around the end of that Kratomless week, I was fine. I didn't have a desire to be high or take Kratom, but something changed on that last day. Up until now, this was the closest I have ever come to stopping Kratom, but as you can tell, there is still more to this depressing story. I wanted to do Kratom and told myself that I was just going to buy it one more time and be done with it. Well, I bought the 5 pack of the OPMS gold extract pills from a head shop and took one. When it kicked in, I felt so fucking good and knew that my habit was going to continue no matter what I told myself. I went back to two doses a day for a period of my life and since then I have stopped taking Kratom about three times. One time was for three days and the last two times were for a little over a day. So yeah, I pretty much haven't stopped since then. It really only goes downhill from here, but the worst part of my Kratom addiction happened in late 2020 to 2021. I apparently thought that two doses wasn't enough, so I started taking three. Yep, you heard that right, three doses a day. I also raised the dosages to nine grams each dose. So during this extended period of time, I was doing 27 fucking grams a day. Sometimes more, sometimes less. I don't know what urged me to do this, but I did it. I would dose before I got to work, halfway through the day, and then near the end of my workday so I'd be a little high at home. I was also scarfing these capsules down with bangs, the energy drink with 300 milligrams of caffeine. I would drink one bang for my first dose and one bang for my last dose. I still can't believe I did that shit. There were also some days where I would take the normal dose in the morning and then take like 3 to 4 more grams 45 minutes after. Please, don't be like me. When I was doing these large doses of Kratom each day, my anxiety started skyrocketing. I never had anxiety in high school. I was carefree and didn't really give a fuck about anything. Now though, I was a worried and stressed mess of a person. Basically at this point, I was just taking Kratom to not only feel high, but feel normal. I felt like I needed to take Kratom to get through a day of work and I never missed a dose to achieve this normalcy. I hope people who are listening to this understand that I never intended to do Kratom daily like this, but it slowly crept its way into my soul and mind and took control of it. Another thing I want to add is that my tolerance has pretty much stayed stagnant. I can do 8.5 grams and still feel stimulated. So even doing these large doses repeatedly never really raised my tolerance unless you are comparing it to my first two years where I wasn't addicted. 
Anyways, I did three doses a day for months until I finally stopped taking that halfway through the day dose and only take it in the morning and late afternoon. It has been like that since then with some minor changes involved. I have no idea how I was able to cut down a dose, but I'm glad I did. The thought of doing three doses nowadays is so insane that I can't believe I used to be like that. So not only does this addiction take hold of your mind and spirit, but it also takes control of your wallet. Every couple of weeks I go into a head shop to buy the 500 capsule Kratom bottle and also buy the OPMS gold extract sometimes too. If you ever do Kratom and my story is somehow not deterring you away, please don't ever buy the extract. It is so powerful and costs so much money to keep up with. I have been taking them a lot more recently and it costs $50 for 5 extract pills where I am located. To give a rough estimate as to how much I spend on Kratom yearly, it would have to be around $5,000, I'm not shitting you. It could be more or it could be less, but I would take the former. Since I haven't really described the effects, I will do so now. The peak of the Kratom high feels like your body got a little bit more numb, you are more sociable, in a better mood, and just everything becomes a little bit more alright in your life. I compare this addiction to a caffeine addiction. You're going to feel better after you ingest it, and this feeling of improvement will become necessary and your body will require you to take it every single day. You are activating the reward system in your brain from these substances, and that's why it's very hard to quit. Since becoming addicted to Kratom, there are many things that have happened to me, both physically and mentally. Physically, I'm very fatigued and tired all the time. That could be due to my job, but the Kratom doesn't help it. I also shake damn near all the time, and if I do the extracts, the shakes become more pronounced. I also see static and floaters in my vision, which can go back to my psychedelic use, but I feel like the Kratom is only making it worse. As long as I don't focus on it, I won't notice it. I'm not as worried about the physical detriments to my body as I am the mental ones. I have extreme anxiety, I don't like going out, I'm afraid to talk to women, and a lot of friends I have had have basically disappeared because I'm nervous to see them, and I also panic a lot and feel depressed most days. I feel like I'm also just stuck in my own thoughts, these are bad thoughts too. Every time I think of something it always ends up turning out negative. I'm not gonna say I'm never in a good mood, but I'm definitely in this distressed state more than in a cheerful state. There is one positive thing to come out of all this though, and it's that I have a severe amount of empathy towards others. I try to help people in need and do whatever I can to make their lives better. If my life already sucks, I don't want others to feel the same pain as I do. This kind of empathy though is also a negative for me. I feel like since I know everyone else's pain that I will never be happy again. The knowledge of the suffering of the human race and also innocent animals terrorizes me daily knowing that I can only do so much. I'm not saying I'm a good person either, I still make mistakes and do bad things, so don't get it twisted. Sometimes when I talk to people I'll start stuttering my words because I'm already thinking of the next sentence I'm going to say, so the words jumble into each other and it comes out as a stutter. I have also noticed I have weird tics where I grab my chin and scratch my head when talking to someone, usually when it's a question. When I notice this, I immediately stop. My old counselor, who I don't visit anymore, noticed this about me and made me paranoid about it ever since. Yeah, thanks a lot. People have also told me I'm very funny and calm. I can only be funny because of the torment my mind goes through on a daily basis. That's why, if you haven't noticed, comedians are more likely to kill themselves. Just look it up and you'll see it happens quite frequently. 
I wouldn't say I'm suicidal, but I've definitely thought about it a couple times. Whether that's just crashing into the median on the freeway or shooting myself. I can't say I would ever actually do this, but I've never gotten to the point of it being even close to doing those things. There is not one person that knows I am addicted to Kratom. People know I have taken it before, but they do not know anything past that, like the extent and frequency of my use. It is very easy to hide that you're on it because it's not going to fuck you up like a strong opioid or stimulant will. It gives you a mix of both that balances the two to create a normal person. People who see me daily think that's the real me. No, that's the Kratom-induced sack of animated limbs. Currently, I'd say I can manage the doses better. I still do a lot, but I can wait to do a dose. Unfortunately, I still have to do two, but before, I had to do it at a specific time. There is still the lingering problem of it being on my mind before I take it. For example, before my second dose, I am pretty much always thinking of Kratom up until I do it. I wait until my lunch is digested and my stomach is more empty because empty stomachs do make a difference. Although, over the summer I was super high from taking and eating breakfast after. I did take an extract though, so that could be why. The anxiety nowadays has gone down a little and same with the depression, but I am prescribed medication so I am sure that's helping. I do not drink or do any other drugs, so I guess that's one thing to be happy about. I forgot to add to that period of time I was doing three doses in a day, I was also drinking quite frequently. Somehow though, I feel worse than back then. Maybe I don't, as it's hard to go back in time to see how I felt. I'm hoping that all these mental and physical symptoms go away if I stop taking Kratom because it's getting to the point of being unbearable. I wish I could talk to a close friend about what's going on inside my head and the insufferable addiction I'm going through. I'm just so embarrassed to tell someone. It's not like weed or alcohol where it's normal in society to be addicted to those substances. Yes, people who smoke every day are addicted. I do not care what you have to say. Kratom, on the other hand, is not really well known with normal people in society and the people that do know what it is think it's K2 or some shit, which it's not even close to. My short-term goal with this addiction is cutting it down to one dose a day and cutting out all the extracts. The bad part about the extract is that I can afford it. I mean, it's great that I'm financially stable, but I hate how much I love those things. The long-term goal I have, obviously, is stop taking it completely. I really don't know how long that will take or if it will even happen at all. I just know something has to happen in my life to deter me away from it forever. Even if I do stop, am I going to end up back on it? I hope that my mind will trample the stupid fucking addiction once and for all and I will go back to living a normal life without the satanic substance. I can't even recall what it was like before this took over my life. I'd say that Kratom has definitely ruined my life. I know that I'm still young and have room for improvement, but the future looks completely bleak in regards to Kratom use. Until I go months without taking a single Kratom capsule, I will not be satisfied with my life. Even if I stop taking it for months, there is still a chance I will be super stressed, mad, or whatever feeling that makes me want to escape that reality for just a short period of time. I hope none of you think this story is bullshit and can't happen because it's Kratom. It's 100% true and I want you all to take what I have to say to heart because I don't want anyone to experience the horrors that I'm going through. How Kratom fools you is its subtlety. You may not realize you have a problem until it's too late, just like me. It's just like being an alcoholic, a caffeine addict, or even a food addict. Any kind of addiction is bad, some are worse than others though. 
You can still function normally on this and look as though you're clean, but in reality, you know you're not any better off than someone suffering from a worse addiction. You have the same problems as them, just not as severe. To end this journey I have taken you through, I just want to say that you should never take Kratom under any circumstances, unless you are going through a horrible opioid, benzo, or alcohol withdrawal. Those are seriously the only people I would recommend taking it. Even then though, if there is a way to combat your withdrawals or addictions with something else, please do that instead. If you are currently taking it but are just doing it occasionally, don't ever take more than that. If you can keep it under control like that, then it won't cause you that much harm, but you never know if it will lead to what I'm currently going through, or even worse. If you would have told me I was going to be addicted like this four years ago, I would have taken the crack you were smoking and take a hit of that shit because there's no way in hell someone could get addicted to this. Just please be careful, seriously, your life can be negatively changed forever. I had my first and so far sole experience with DPT around 8 months back. I was initially somewhat traumatized, but I believe I've since learned the meaning of the experience and come to terms with whatever it was. I am now in rehab for heroin addiction, where I am encouraged to look at a few things that have happened in my life, DPT being one of the big ones, so I decided to write a trip report. One night, I was with my friend who will go by the pseudonym K. He had done a lot of Lucy and a few research chemicals before the experience. Whilst I had done only research chemicals and mushrooms, I had not yet popped my acid cherry. We got into a heated discussion about drugs and the like, and I told him about the damned powerful tryptamine. He was eager to try it, and I had been thinking about it for a long time, so we decided to go over to my friend's house. He will be P. Of course, neither of us could have possibly fathomed what we were in for. The three of us went down to P's basement and wait out the lines. P did 200 milligrams as he had tried it before and insisted that K and I do at least 150 milligrams in order to fully break through and get past the point of fear and anxiety. So we wait out the lines and stared at them in a silent buildup of anticipation for nearly a half an hour, which reached its climax when P yelled, why do we do this to ourselves? And the three of us simultaneously snorted the powder. It felt like a needle frozen to absolute zero penetrating my nose a thousand times. Then, a cold tremor slowly spread through my body from my nose to my fingertips. It felt as if I were falling into ice water nose first in slow motion and the entire room violently shifted and trailed off. A feeling of the most profound unfamiliarity spread through my mind, body, and soul and I waved my hand in front of my face to test the visuals. I expected some trails. Instead, I saw an indescribable number of solid versions of my hand, slightly overlapping each other, plastered across my vision. The hands proceeded to fractalize into infinity, with far too many iterations for my mind to process. Kay and I looked at each other, and, while English still existed, I screamed, What the fuck did we just snort? And we both leaped for the benzos that were sitting on the table. Some cosmic entity must have judged us for our cowardice and the table simply melted away before my eyes. I'm still not sure whether or not we took the benzos, but after this, I was confronted with a horribly mutilated, distorted version of myself. The changes in my body somehow represented my naivete and fear and it disgusted me. It said drugs and the word was repeated infinitely until all connotations were stripped from the sound and then the peak began. 
I felt the psychedelic tremors build up in my body until it felt as if I was lying on concrete next to a jackhammer, but the vibrations were coming from within me, pumping through all my veins and nerves simultaneously. My body and soul were being stretched and squeezed through every nook and cranny of the cosmos. I was imploding and exploding, concave and convex, whilst tunneling through all possible dimensions and the sensory overload was too much to bear, and then I died. Suddenly, I found myself looking down from the ceiling on all three of our bodies mutilated, with blood pouring out of all orifices, and I felt surprisingly calm. I thought to myself, well, I guess we just killed ourselves, we can only go forward from here. For an indescribable period of time, I lived in the world of death and fear, with eyes in all the walls staring into my soul. There had been an awful glitch in the universe, and it will remain this way for eternity. I was granted hundreds of new and completely alien senses, which would be like describing sight to a blind man, and my unfamiliar sensory apparatus was being poked and prodded with painful impossibilities, and the world of death simply was. We had the vague idea that something normal had existed before, but that was eons ago, and we were forced to relinquish all preconceptions and familiarities, and then something beautiful happened. I felt the tiniest spark of life, and it built up until it was stronger and stronger and brighter and brighter, and, suddenly, the elastic band of my perception snapped. It felt as if I had been drowning and swimming upwards for years, and I had finally reached the surface. It reminded me of the scene from The Matrix where they break through the clouds and see the true sky for a split second. I felt all of life's vibrations simultaneously. I felt all the living that ever had happened and ever would happen, and my consciousness was lit up with the most vibrant, beautiful, and impossible color. I could see every submicroscopic particle vibrating with life, and I lived in this world, and I caressed its every atom. I was confronted with a lurking fear and impurity in the beauty, and it built up more and more until I was back in the room in the basement. I felt pure hatred and loneliness and was lost in a time loop, the ragdoll of all sorts of horribly mutilated, hateful entities which were laughing at me from all around. I was a naked baby in the deepest, darkest corner of reality with absolutely no sympathy or compassion. I somehow likened this feeling to a knockoff electronics store in Chinatown, but it was all worth it when I felt the love. I was brought to a world where I felt the pure and distilled essence of love, every particle. It was love in all its forms, sexual, emotional, physical, and of the purest beauty conceivable. My new senses were being stroked and caressed by the universe, and I felt all love that ever was or ever would be. Time no longer had meaning. I felt hints of what was to come. My ego was completely obliterated, and all that there was was love, and it was beautiful and complete. I was held at the very peak of orgasm for millennia, and then that climactic feeling somehow fractalized and I felt millions of iterations of the feeling of pure physical and emotional pleasure all at once, and my hundreds of senses were melded together in pure synesthesia. The words ecstasy and bliss fall light years short of describing it. I lived in the worlds of polar opposite emotions for years, and it felt like they were coming together, spiraling upward, intertwining with each other more and more tightly, like the chainsaw buildup of a techno drop. My perception was changing and morphing so quickly my brain could hardly process its surroundings. It was like playing a high quality movie on a slow computer with everything lagging somehow beautifully. My reality moved forward in beautiful arabesque intertwining lines weaving into each other somehow digitally. I felt the collective god of the universe whisper to me and hint at itself and then zang. Every atom of my body was simultaneously split into infinite thermonuclear explosions. I felt my body go through the process of nuclear fusion and I became a star, where all possible realities and all polar opposites came together into one beautiful singularity. 
It was the point where all compliments unite, where all things come together, where there is no future, present or past. Time is solid and distilled and meaningless. The purest expression of the oneness of the universe. It was like staring into the sun for a thousand years, the light of the universe blinding all your senses and burning straight into your soul. There is no I, there is no ego, it simply is. It is God. It is the process. This was the DPT peak, the most mind-blowing possible experience, and, as of to conclude this part of the experience, I was, once again confronted with a strange version of myself. This time, however, my form was immaculate and fine, emanating serenity and infiniteness, sitting in the lotus position and hovering above the ground with one finger to my lips. It was as if to say, the old you was wrong. This is no drug. This is holy. This is a sacrament. After the peak, once the ego begins to return, is the truly bizarre part of the trip. I found myself once again in P's basement. I was not yet back in my own body, but I now had some perception of my surroundings. I was seeing myself and my friends from a third-person perspective, and the room was made out of some sort of grotesque organic matter, with the walls consisting of grimy organs and blood vessels and thousands of terrible eyes staring at me. It was like being in a Zerg building from StarCraft. The trip then became some sort of awful parody of my own existence, taking on a dark and demonic funhouse sort of feeling, where everything was distorted and mutated in some sort of horrifyingly comedic way. I looked at Kay and said, Dude, what the fuck? And pointed at Kay. Then he pointed at P, and P made a strange dismissive sort of gesture, and then I said, Dude, what the fuck? And pointed at Kay, and he pointed at P. And horrifyingly, the cycle continued. I found myself stuck in an incredibly long time loop, and I thought to myself that, if I didn't play my part in the loop, it would end. But every time it came around to my turn to make my gesture, it would continue the loop. I would find myself pointing at Kay. I'd somehow lost my free will. It was horrifying. I truly believed I would be stuck in this loop eternally, but something strange happened. Kay's third eye opened up, and he bent down and vomited out his consciousness. There was this pink vomit-like fluid floating around the room. It looked like a liquid, but somehow it was solid. Kay's glasses had fallen in it, and we simply stared at his consciousness with his glasses sitting in it and looked at each other with the strangest expressions. Then I saw him in the fetal position shivering with the most horrified expression I have ever seen on his face, and some of the pink liquid which represented his consciousness found its way into my mind, and I felt what it was like to be him for a split second, and I started to get the fear too. We still remain in this liquid but somehow solid horror funhouse world, except now with a touch of a digital feeling for what seemed like forever and I still had no idea I had taken a drug, but I knew that I had been in that basement for far too long and if I remained there much longer, I would, in all likelihood, be stuck in that tormenting basement of purgatory for eternity. So I made a run for the door, I ran for the stairs and climbing the steps was a harrowing journey as if through the intestinal tract of some strange monster with my mind fully focused on that beautiful shimmering doorknob. And as soon as my hand touched it, I found myself sitting back in the chair as if some cruel entity would rewind time whenever I came close to escape, toying with me horribly. I kept going in this process for ages until what sounded like some sort of cosmic laughing track played. A cacophony of terrible laughter filled my ears and I felt the most intense possible feeling of embarrassment. I had made some sort of horrible mistake and all of humanity was laughing at me. Somehow, we finally managed to make it out of the basement. It felt like it had been years. I was confronted with the most amazing possible sense of relief to see the upstairs of the house. The world was still profoundly abnormal, but at least we had escaped the basement. 
Things from the past kept happening in the future, and the future in the present, and the present in the past, all at the same time. Time was not even remotely linear, but we could at least walk around at this point. We had previously decided not to go outside, onto the street while on DPT, but we no longer cared. We saw the front door and believed our only hope to escape the eternal limbo of the monstrous house was to go out into the street, no matter what we would confront out there. So, we somehow managed to open the front door, and what we saw shocked our mutual existence to its very core. We opened the door, and there was nothing outside. Our little trip was all of existence, and when we came to that horrible solipsis realization, I remember looking at P and K and seeing the most profound expressions of terror possible. Next, P's brother came downstairs. He looked like some sort of awesome godlike entity. I couldn't even speak after the shock of the lack of existence outside the house, but K believed that P's brother was God and confessed all his mortal sins to him, praying at his feet. Eventually, we reached our come down. At this point, it was like being on maybe a 10 strip of LSD, but our egos started to find their ways back into our bodies. K said, didn't we have names? Weren't we people? P said, didn't we live in Montreal? I said, yeah, 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 I was K and you were J. And K said, no, no, it was the other way around. And eventually we all figured out who we were. The rest of the trip was still somewhat terrifying and apparently I died at some point and P gave me CPR, but it might've just been a metaphor. Either way, I woke up almost a day later and I'd slept for a very long time, my brain having been very tired. Apparently K ran out of the house and halfway across the city as soon as the door opened to some sort of reality. Since this trip, I have learned a lot. It was terrifying, but I certainly do not regret it, and I certainly have a better understanding of how the Temple of the True Inner Light people believe in this substance as a manifestation of God. You have not truly lived until you've experienced the peak of a DPT trip. Whether you have taken 100 milligrams of 4-ACO-DMT, 1 milligram of LSD, or 100 milligrams of 2-CE, absolutely nothing can prepare you for a DPT peak. There is no way to be ready, except just to do it. I encourage people to try this compound, but be very wary. Don't fuck around with DPT. It all began in the summer of 95 when I was 14 years old when I started shooting heroin. I had no father and my mother was an abusive wretch who had rather die than spend a single minute around. After several months of smoking crack, a girl that I knew introduced me to heroin. She got the needle ready, put it in my arm, injected the liquid, and holy shit, it was the best feeling ever. It was like a full body and mind orgasm times a thousand. I don't know, you really have to experience it yourself to comprehend it. Anyway, after several years of shooting dope and working a shitty job at a convenience store, 2003, a friend of mine, who will call B, hit me up telling me that he knew a guy who had this drug that could produce euphoria more powerful than the first time he tried heroin. He told me that this guy was not only the biggest crackhead west of the Mississippi, but he also had ready access to all different types of drugs, from volatile inhalants and stimulants like top quality meth and coke, all the way to research psychedelics, intactogens, and delirients. During this time, the only drugs that I had used so far were heroin and oxycodone. I was interested, so I asked what the drug was. He just chuckled and said, you'll see, as he beckoned me to his car. I had the day off, so I got into his car and we drove for about an hour until we arrived at an older house with an old Ford pickup parked in front of it. 
We got out and went to the front door and knocked. This guy, C, who looked like a disheveled version of Norman Reedus answered the door. He was obviously hyped up on some kind of stimulant as he began speed talking about a hydrocarbon that feels like heaven while looking up at the sky. I began laughing at his odd behavior as we walk in. I asked him what this drug was and he ran out of the room and came back later holding a canister with the text R22 on it. He said it was called Freon and said that it was like a combination of heroin and PCP minus the psychosis and mania. He handed me a balloon and told me to connect the balloon to the canister. Ignoring the giant ass do not inhale sign on the front of the canister, I did so, and he then said to put the balloon to your mouth and begin exhaling and inhaling like you would with nitrous oxide. I detached the balloon and began huffing. I took a hit, and holy shit, this stuff was like the rush I got from my first heroin injection multiplied a hundredfold. It was at that point that heroin lost its magic, and I knew that Freon would be my new drug of choice. Looking back on it, this was probably the biggest mistake I have ever made. Considering how many drugs this guy somehow had access to, I should have asked for some 2CB or something, not this shit. Anyway, after the rush faded, which probably lasted for about 2-4 to four minutes, I passed the balloon to my friend, who began huffing. We then refilled the balloon and I went first. I took four hard hits and euphoria washed over me once more, even more intense than before, as my vision faded to a greenish cyan color. My friends were laughing, the pitch of their voice was dipping from high to low and I immediately saw myself from the third person. I was standing, wobbling like an old person. I then took the perspective of the television, which was right across from the sofa we were at. Everything suddenly turned to a red color as B jumped atop the sofa and yelled, I'm the king of the world, and then jumped off, falling on his ass and making a loud ass bang in the process. C began laughing his ass off as B hobbled up and began huffing again. I was then struck with a feeling of paranoia as I was scared that I was doomed to be a TV for the rest of my existence, that this was my punishment for hedonism. A few minutes later, I came to. I was still standing, but I was dizzy as hell and had a slight headache. C passed me the balloon and I took two more huffs. I didn't trip again, but I was filled with confusion. B said something along the lines of, Bro, imagine huffing Freon while tripping on Benadryl. Though I knew what Benadryl was, my Freon riddled mind had no idea what he was talking about, so I responded with, Benadryl? What's Benadryl? Benidryl? Benodrel? Wait, no, I bent a drill. The rest of the night went on like this as I took about a dozen or so more hits, but not in succession. I probably would have died if I took 12 hits in a row. A few hours later, B drove me home as a tingly feeling radiated throughout my body. The next day, I craved Freon more than I ever craved heroin. I craved this Freon so much that I would be willing to be flagellated, crucified, then boiled alive five times over just to get it. I did some research and found out that Freon was easily accessible through AC units. I called up B and told to meet me at the local church. The church had multiple AC units as it turned out. We went there and began huffing. I took five hits and I felt a euphoric rush accompanied by a feeling of shrinking at an extreme speed. I shrunk down to the size of a quark. 
Everything around me looked completely alien as I took the size of an elementary particle. It looked absolutely stunning and I wanted to stay there forever. I wandered around for a few hours, but then some other quarks came over and began talking to me. Holy shit, where did you come from? One of the quarks exclaimed. Dude, what the hell are you doing? Why the absolute fuck would you inhale hydrocarbons? What the hell is wrong with you? Another exclaimed. The quarks were right. They were trying to help me. I knew what they were saying and I knew they were right, but I didn't care. The euphoria was too much. I then began growing again and I was horrified. Horrified that I would no longer exist in that perfect world I was in. After the trip ended, I found myself lying on the pavement, looking up at the sun. I got up and looked at my watch. It had only been two minutes, even though the trip felt like it lasted hours. I hobbled over to the AC and started huffing again. I took six hits and looked behind me. There was an 18-wheeler parked by the church, and it suddenly transformed into a giant robot. The robot began laughing at me laughing at me for how stupid I was and how I would go nowhere in life, all while bearing the most terrifying grin I'd ever seen on any living thing. Then, just like that, the trip ended. My next experience happened two days later. I had bought myself a canister of Freon R22 and some balloons. As soon as I got home, I unboxed the canister and began huffing. I took seven hits. Euphoria hit me as usual, and everything took on a 16-bit look. I became confused as I interacted with the things around my house. Every time I touched the wall, there was a pixelated ripple effect on it. Same thing with everything else I touched. I walked over to the bedroom and opened the door. The entire room was still 16-bit, but it was in a black and white color. There was a person who sort of resembled Toad from Super Mario sitting on my bed. He told me, you're locked to the cold. Please end this. I didn't know what he meant. Suddenly, everything began fading, and after 10 seconds of blackness, I heard the toad guy yell, Don't wake up! Don't wake up! Don't wake up! Awaken or cease to be! Don't wake up! I beg of you! I woke up, picked up the balloon, refilled it, and started huffing again. After two huffs, I heard a knock on the door. It was B. I let him in and gave him a balloon. We then began huffing. I took six hits and another trip began. I felt a euphoric rush and noticed that my PS2 took on a human shape like the 18-wheeler did and began dancing. I looked over to my friend and told him that he had to see this. He looked at the dancing PS2. I then began laughing. I was laughing so hard I could have had a stroke. After several minutes of laughing, the trip then ended, as did the euphoria. I started huffing again and a new trip began. The PS2 was still standing there, talking to me. It said, you are, and then said, in a loud, booming voice. I turned around and walked out of the home. I looked up to the sky and saw a shit ton of UFOs and aliens slowly falling to the ground. The aliens pulled out laser blasters and began destroying the cars and homes. I sat there, watching the destruction happen. Suddenly, the trip ended, and I had the worst headache ever, accompanied by severe rebound anxiety. I began huffing again, and this time, I actually passed out.
This next experience was the last Freon trip I had. This time, I was with some friends of mine, including B, at a house party near my home. Most of the kids there were in college, but some were still in high school. Most of them weren't doing any drugs, but the ones that were, were using more tame drugs such as beer, MDMA, cocaine, or LSD. Meanwhile, B and I, as well as two others, were huffing Freon in the backyard near a bonfire. I took 10 hits in succession, everything went black, and then my vision faded from blue to red about 50 times, and then I found myself in what looked like a hallway. The walls were made of metal, and the floors were black. I turned around and saw about a dozen dark red figures. They began talking, one after another. The first one said, No! The second, Cursed. The third, You doomed yourself. The fourth, Why did you kill us all? I was terrified. I thought these beings would kill me. I started running, and I realized that this hallway was actually a maze. I just ran at full speed. I just continued running for what felt like millions of years. No joke. It literally felt like millions of years passed during this trip. I ran, and the red figures were chasing, yelling various insults at me. After another million years of running, the trip apparently ended. I woke up next to the bonfire, and it actually took me about 30 minutes to comprehend that millions of years did not pass, as it legit felt like millions of years. I asked B how long I was out for, and he said about a minute and a half. I picked up another balloon and began huffing again, and I was right back into the same maze. I began running again as the same red figures were chasing me, threatening to kill me. A few million years then passed, and then everything went black, and my body went numb. I then heard a beeping sound, and as soon as the beeping sound started, the message, warning, body temperature below 95 degrees, in red text with the red triangle warning sign beside it flashed for about 15 times before everything faded to a blood red color as I felt pain that was on par with a cluster headache throughout my entire head. A few seconds later, I began experiencing psychedelic-like visuals as the pain quickly faded into euphoria this rush being the most powerful one yet. Despite the powerful euphoric rushes I've had prior to this one, there's no adequate word in any known language on the planet to describe how utterly at peace I felt. Then it clicked in my head that I was dying. I just laid there, ready and excited to accept my fate. Then, a moment of clarity hit me. I didn't want to die. I was only 22 years old. I know I was hopelessly addicted to shit, but I still had potential, so much to do. Faintly, I heard B yell, Shit, 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 he's foaming, call an ambulance now. I then heard echoed yelling of what sounded like paramedics yelling a bunch of medical jargon. I still couldn't see, but the feeling of relief was unreal. I woke up in the hospital. The doctor came in a few minutes later and told me that my lungs were nearly destroyed and that my internal body temperature was only 79 degrees, a dangerously low level, and had I gone without treatment for even a few more minutes, I would have died from cardiac arrest or a brain freeze, a literal brain freeze. He then asked me how many times I had huffed Freon and I told him that I lost count, that it was so addictive that it was impossible to keep track. He then told me that it was nothing short of a miracle that I didn't die from hypothermia in 
internal frostbite or hypoxia, and that it was also a miracle that I was still able to think and talk coherently considering how many brain cells perished during my huffing sessions. It was also a miracle that I didn't fall and fracture my skull or some shit while under the influence. He then said due to my addictive personality that I should check into an addiction program as soon as I am discharged. I met B at the same program and told him that I was quitting Freon and heroin. He said he was doing the same. My psychiatrist prescribed low-dose benzodiazepines to deal with the anxiety from withdrawal and the addiction program went well. I still got cravings, but they aren't as intense as they used to be. I was eventually able to get off the heroin and the Freon and got myself a job and a car. I'm doing pretty well for myself now and me and B are still friends. As deadly as Freon was, it taught me an invaluable lesson, a lesson I should have learned long before I touched it, and it gave me one of the most precious gifts that one could ask for, a chance at a new start. I've been clean of heroin and Freon for over a decade now. I still enjoy drugs, however. I smoke weed once a week and pop the occasional acid tab or 2CB tablet, but I no longer shoot dope or huff dangerous hydrocarbons. Take this from me, never huff anything, never, ever huff anything, period. Use literally anything else, sniff some coke, shoot some ketamine, smoke a joint, or pop a molly. You're better off doing any other drug than huffing volatile solvents. I learned that the hard way, and it could happen to you. Again, never huff anything, your body will thank you, trust me. I've been abusing methamphetamine pills for the past two years or so. Things had really started to get out of control during the last few months. My relationship was falling apart and my partner asked me to leave our home until I was clean. I had nowhere to go so I took all of my belongings and drove eight hours to a friend's house. I had many misadventures along the way, but that is part of a different story. Unbeknownst to me, my friend was also a recovering stimulant addict. He also is a medical professional and a fellow psychonaut. We took LSD and shrooms together over the course of three days. Without judgment, this friend of mine showed me how to use the power of psychedelics in ways I've never been able to achieve on my own. He gently guided me to confront my addiction issues, and by the time I left his home one week later, I had dumped my entire stash and was committed to never touching any drugs other than weed or psychs ever again, or so I thought. I came home to my partner who accepted me with open arms, as long as I could stay clean. She said she had the man she fell in love with back. I started a new job a few weeks later. This is when I should have spotted the warning signs that I may have been a bit overconfident in my abilities to beat this addiction overnight. Once I got back into the daily grind, getting up at 5am and working every single day, I didn't have any cravings for stimulants, however... I was still craving something. I was smoking at least an eighth of weed a day. I started to take Kratom every day before work to get up and moving early in the morning. I would typically order my drugs online from plugs I had met over the years. I was looking for a good price and some good weed and took a chance ordering from a vendor that I was familiar with, but had not done much business with in the past. This is where everything starts to fall apart again. 
I got the package in the mail, and when I opened it, I was surprised to find about a quarter bag of crystal meth. I contacted the vendor who had some bullshit excuse about how he mixed up his packs and he would reship my weed. This vendor knew that I was trying to get clean off his of stims and he told me I should flush the bag immediately. I should have taken his advice. Of course, I did not. My plan was to sell his bag to an acquaintance and make some extra money, so I held on to it for a few days until I could meet up with the guy and make the sale. The next morning, crawling out of bed at 5am, my old addict brain possessed me again. Might as well just have a little line before work, one last hurrah, no one will know but you, and plus you're getting rid of it all in a couple days anyway. I did a small line, felt that old familiar feeling kick in. Even while I was chopping up the line, I remember thinking to myself, this is a horrible mistake, but the addict side won. After work, I decided to redose. I cut up a fat line this time. I did not have much experience with pure crystal and was used to taking pressed pills. I'm not sure how much I actually dosed the second time, but I knew as soon as it went up my nose that it was way too much. I didn't sleep that night, but I had been overstimmed so many times. I knew that as long as I didn't redose, I'd get through the day and be able to crash the second night. No sleep came the second night either, or the third night. That is when I became concerned because the meth should have been out of my system by then. It was on the evening of the fourth day that the hallucinations began. The first thing I remember is laying on my bed and reaching for a cup of water on my nightstand. I went to grab it and my hand passed right through. The strangest confusion washed over me. I tried to grab it again, and even though I could see the cup clear as day, my hand passed through like Patrick Swayze in Ghost. I looked away and looked back, and the cup was still there. Even when I knew it was a hallucination, I could not unsee it. Then the shadow people. Creeping out of my closet in the corners of my bedroom were the outlines of these entities slowly floating toward me. They looked like they were wearing hoodies and had no faces, but they felt intelligent and I could sense nothing but pure evil emanating from them. I started getting really worried and figured I should probably go to the hospital, but this meant I had to confess to my partner. I had gone behind her back and relapsed. I had been playing it off as if I was sick up to this point, but decided I needed to confess. I told her I believed I had entered meth-induced psychosis and I might need to go to the hospital. She was very upset with me. We weighed the pros and cons of going to the emergency room. I didn't want to be locked up in a mental ward and knew if I was able to just fall asleep, I would wake up right as rain. My partner was so upset with me, she basically said I put myself in this situation and if I want to go to the hospital, then I can call for an ambulance myself. I should mention that I probably downplayed the severity of my psychosis as to not freak her out and to lessen the blow of having broken my promise to stay clean once again to her. I decided I would try to sleep it off one more night. This is when I truly broke away and lost all touch with the real world. I remember thinking that my friend had directed a movie that he never told me about and it was on YouTube and I decided to put it on. The plot had something to do with multiple intersecting stories of these characters trying to survive an apocalyptic event. There was some kind of huge explosion that decimated most of the earth. To my delight, my friend had based one of the characters in the film on me and another one of our friends. He also had based the character on himself. 
My character had called my two friends and we made plans to meet at his house and try to ride out the apocalypse together. This slowly started to change perspectives. I was no longer watching the plot unfold in a movie. I was now experiencing the movie as the character that was based on myself. I met up with one friend, we can call Phil, by somehow transporting to his house, and then we drove to my other friend's home, we can call Bob, who lived in another city. When we got to his house, we entered through a side door. He lived in an attached duplex, and next to him lived an elderly black couple and their two grandchildren. We did not make any contact with them yet, but I could see everything that was unfolding in their home as well, sort of like I was switching back and forth between first person and movie mode. We decided to hunker down and smoke some weed at Bob's house. The next thing I remember, I could see the entire destroyed earth reconstruct itself. The world went from complete ruin back to normal in a matter of seconds, and there was some sense that this was a digital world like when you die in a video game and then restart at the save point. However, we didn't get to rejoin the world, and we were stuck in this apocalyptic dimension, looking down over the pristine earth that went about its business as if nothing happened. All of the people who had died in the apocalypse were reset in the exact positions that they were in when the world ended, and were none the wiser anything had occurred at all. This included alternate versions of ourselves that got to finish living our lives while we were trapped in this purgatory. It turns out that the family that lived next to Bob were trapped in purgatory with us as well. There is an entire subplot that is very fuzzy to me now that involved us going back to Earth and murdering our own replacements and living out their lives, but each time we did, the apocalypse would happen again and we would end up in the exact situation. After some kind of eternity, myself, Phil, Bob, and Bob's neighbors had all accepted our fates. We were trapped in purgatory in this desolate wasteland forever. Then a new plot development occurred. The old man that lived next to Bob used to be a brilliant engineer and had all sorts of blueprints and science books in his basement. He had regretted wasting his life away with drinking and had let his great mind go to waste. Additionally, Bob and the oldest daughter that lived next door ended up having children, and somehow their children had children. We had used the old man's books and blueprints to reinvent the battery. We were then able to harness electricity and use it to watch the film that I thought my friend Phil had directed, which was the delusion I was currently living out. The old man preached to his children and great-grandchildren about how they should not waste their brains and to not follow in his footsteps. Then he would tell tales of the old world and would show the film. Some time had passed and we had repopulated this desolate land with hundreds of people, but they were all deformed from inbreeding and they didn't look completely human. They resembled something like orcs from the Lord of the Rings. They turned watching Phil's movie into a sort of ritual and eventually an entire religion was built upon it. Meanwhile, the old man passed away but the youngest of his granddaughters continued to work endlessly on one of the inventions he had written a blueprint for. This device was completed, and then we somehow used it to open a portal down to Earth. Another device was invented that created glowing orbs that were human souls. It became our job to create all the new souls and send them down to Earth. These souls knew of Phil's movie and of us, and we became the gods and goddesses of a new religion for all of humanity. One of the orbs was the Messiah, and we put Jesus on Earth. Our intentions were always good, and we hoped for peace. 
After thousands of years, we had finally somehow figured out how to get to heaven. We had been trapped in limbo for so long. Heaven was through some sort of portal, and when you went through, you would stay there for 10,000 years and then return. The catch was that you can only go one time, but the experience was pure bliss and ecstasy. I didn't want to experience heaven without my partner and our son, so I had to wait for them to die and join me in limbo. They said when they finally came, it was magical, and I sobbed when I saw them again, and we all walked into heaven together. The next thing I remember, the movie was over, and I was very confused. I kept peeking out the blinds to see if the outside world looked normal, or if the apocalypse had actually happened. I assumed that it must have happened and that I was now in heaven with my partner as she was laying next to me. I woke her up and tried to explain to her that we were dead and to not go outside. I still don't think she understood the extent of my psychosis at that point because I could recognize her and where I was and she got up and went to work. The series of the next set of delusions are all sort of jumbled together. I'm not sure if they were happening simultaneously or if I was experiencing them in some sort of linear fashion. For a time, I was living at my father's house. He had modified his home to fit a strange new lifestyle. This involved being in constant flow with the sun. You would wake up each day and look into a mirror that reflected sunlight into your eyes for 20 seconds immediately each morning. When you slept, you would be snuggled against this strange pliable rod that would keep you in constant motion, rolling you over slowly. You would sleep every four hours for an hour. There was an alarm system that went off and played the same song when it was time to wake up. The song was by some really popular teeny bopper band that dressed up in Barney style creature costumes. When you were not sleeping, you would be outside in constant sunlight. There were activities you would do until the sleep alarm went off. Each activity involved some sort of sun ritual based exercise. At one point, I was trying to sleep on the couch that had an electric stove top inside of the cushions. I kept turning it on and burning myself, and it was painful and terrifying. There was a tractor on my father's property, and I took it for a joyride at night. I drove into town and stumbled upon a festival that seemed to be related to a holiday like Thanksgiving. All of the townspeople were gathered along the main street. I came across a group of police officers on a tall hill above the crowd. There was a giant pig they had on a leash. They were going to have a stuntman ride the pig down the hill and into the crowd of people. This was some kind of tradition that was held annually. I took it upon myself to hop on the pig and took it for an exhilarating joyride. The cops found it amusing and the crowd all cheered when I made it all the way down the hill. I made a big speech into a microphone and then went back to the house. They had captured the entire thing on film and I was able to share it with my family. This is when my fiance may have returned home because she was there with me at my dad's house. She kept telling me that it wasn't my dad's house and I would be confused and it would turn back into our house for just a moment and then back to my dad's. This is when I could feel my brain start to melt. I started to lose all cognitive function and felt like an invalid. I was convinced I would have to live the rest of my life this way or until I became a vegetable. Then my brother showed up. He was using some kind of drug and had moved into my house to take care of me. I kept finding dirty needles all over the place. I didn't trust him. 
I then walked into my room and caught up in bed with my partner, and they both had a dirty look of guilt on their faces. I had lost most of my brain by then, was aware that I was very confused. I was convinced I just walked in on my own brother with my woman and began to get very upset. My fiancé was insisting it didn't happen and said she had to take me to the hospital. I thought she was lying. I wouldn't go with her. I then decided to call my mother because she would know the truth. I called and luckily she answered and told me that my partner would never do that to me and that I should trust her and go to the hospital. I remember a brief scene in the waiting room, trying to tell the person at the desk my personal information. I couldn't remember my name, my social, or what I had taken. Then I remember sitting in a chair and holding my brain in my lap. It was no longer attached to my head. My perspective was from my waist looking up. Then I was planning a meetup with my old friends Phil and Bob again in Disney World. There was a secret floor you can get off on an elevator there on one of the rides that no one knows about. You have to swim underwater to get there. I was in the hospital, but the hospital felt like a jail and I was laying in my bed. The hospital was also located in Disney. I would wait for my friends to get there. This room I was in had a strange familiarity, as if I had been there one time before. I was alone in a bed with a television and an old-fashioned radio. One wall was barred like a jail cell, and it was nighttime. I caught out of the corner of my eye these tiny moving people. They were my friends there to meet me, along with other people I didn't know. They had shrunk themselves, swam through an underground tunnel, and then taken an elevator into my room. They needed to get something, and I helped them by letting them climb across my body. They thanked me by eating the dead skin off my arm on a recent wound that had begun to scab over. They were very happy I had helped them and then went back the way they had came. The next day they visited again, however this time they were wheeled into my room by an orderly. They stood in a circle on top of a cot holding curtains around themselves to hide. I entered the curtain to discover they were all nude. They were selling drugs and weapons, two of them had rats that lived off of their flesh and never left their bodies, like a parasite. They would nest in their pubic hair. They thought it would be exciting to take me on their drug run through the hospital, so they all stood around my bed. This was a carefully orchestrated operation. The orderly was in on the deal when come retrieve the cot and bring it from unit to unit to sell contraband to the residents. Then I was back in my room at night again. My friend had shrunken themselves and entered my room. They gave me a potion to shrink myself and we escaped through a crack in the old-fashioned radio. We took an elevator that opened into a body of water. The potion allowed us to breathe underwater, but it only lasted a short while. Under my floor, we surfaced into a secret chamber. This was a secret place where they had a huge stash of drugs hidden. We were going to take the drugs and then go on all the rides in Disney World. Then the cops showed up. We were all interviewed separately by a woman. Phil then turned out to be an officer as well and had to play it off like he was working undercover, even though he was really committing the crime with us. He then tried to interrogate Bob and I about how the drugs got there and pin it on us. We both knew that he supplied the bulk of the drugs. He finally felt so guilty that he broke down in tears and confessed. We were all arrested. At first, Bob fled the scene, but they caught him. 
They put us in three rooms in the top of a building. I kept walking into the wrong room every time I wanted to use the restroom and was reprimanded. They kept saying, nope, that's not your room. It's this one right here. Phil and I slept the whole time. However, Bob lost his shit. It turned out he had a mental disability and started screaming nonsense and crying like a baby. I thought it might have been some sort of defense mechanism to deny what was happening around him. I remember being envious that he was able to escape reality and the complete horror when realizing the situation I had gotten into. Drug charges, prison, armed guards. I slept and slept and then I ate a meal and slept more. Then I wake up and they tell me I'm going home. I am in a hospital. I'm on the phone with my partner and she will be here in a few minutes. I check out of the hospital with a discharge sheet reading psychosis, unspecified type, and to make an appointment with my PCP within three days. I was so confused for the first couple of weeks. Writing this has been extremely therapeutic for me. In reality, I was only out of the hospital in psychosis for about five hours and then spent the next four days in a hospital bed. None of that happened. I was a lunatic, ranting and raving to myself. I am able to find some strength in my mental fortitude. I know that was a delusion. It is feeling more and more like a dream each day that passes. I have been extremely humbled. This experience has changed me forever. I value my sanity and my mental health so much more now. I'm dedicated to finally dealing with my addiction issues and treating my mental and physical health like a temple. Please let this be a warning sign. Meth is a terrible drug and stimulants in general are playing with fire for anyone with an addictive personality type. My advice is to just stay away. I know I will never touch it again. Around two and a half years ago, my narcissistic mother finally decided to do something about my anorexia. I had been eating around 500 calories a day for more than a year, and she chose to ignore my scary weight loss, said that she simply didn't notice at all. I weighed 33 kilograms, or 72 pounds, and I was 166 centimeters, or 5 foot 4.5 inches tall at the time. I also had body dysmorphia. I still do. My organs were basically failing. I had a lot of heart issues, super low heart rate, arrhythmia, and very low blood pressure. And after we visited a private hospital, my mother was told that I needed to be hospitalized as soon as possible. Unfortunately, it was a holiday. A lot of staff members had allegedly not shown up to work, and they told us that I should come back and prepare for inpatient tomorrow, because due to lack of enough staff, I cannot be admitted. Yeah, I know. Bulgaria. Instead of going back the next day and getting the help that I needed, my mother rang my aunt, who's a pharmacist. She gave us a referral to a psychiatrist that she knew. I didn't visit a psychologist or anything like that beforehand. So we go to said psychiatrist's office, and he unfortunately happened to be a complete idiot. I remember this situation vividly because I was so outraged by his and my mother's behavior. I felt like the least crazy person in the room, although I was technically a walking skeleton. He only asked me why I wasn't eating, and I said that I don't want to. What else could he expect from someone who is anorexic? He looked incredibly disinterested, and it looked like he had some other things to get done too, and further asked me any other questions. 
He basically just started laughing and said that I'll need to start taking Risperidone daily and start eating immediately, or else he'll arrange compulsory treatment in one of the public psych wards in the city. You can feel free to Google what the Bulgarian ones look like, and I obviously couldn't say no. I had a suicidal friend that went to one of them, got molested multiple times by someone from the staff there, and overall got even more traumatized and depressed. The minute he got out of there, he overdosed. Thankfully, he survived, but I was so scared that I could not only be admitted and force-fed, but also abused, so I decided to take the Risperidone and try to secretly continue eating low-calorie until my mother stops paying attention once again. On my way home, I looked up what the drug's purpose is on Google, and I thought it was weird that I was being prescribed an antipsychotic. I told my mother that this is something that's typically prescribed to people with schizophrenia or some kind of a psychosis, and told her that the side effects list is a mile long, but she unsurprisingly didn't really care. I was prescribed 2 milligrams and used it for 7 months. I cannot begin to describe how terrible I felt when I was on the drug. I've seen some online reviews saying that they've helped a lot of people with schizophrenia and that they didn't have a lot of side effects, although there were a bunch of ones saying that they did really have bad long-term effects and it made them feel even worse, but I've never had anything to do with schizophrenia in the first place. First of all, I felt drugged out of my mind, and I don't mean drugged in a feeling better type of way, although I wouldn't know because I haven't ever done drugs. I still thought I was incredibly ugly and fat. It's just that I was in a 24-7 zombie state and I simply couldn't think a lot, or at all most of the time. My thoughts were very slowed and often confusing because I'd forget what I was thinking about 30 seconds beforehand all the time. I just had this constant brain fog, I was nauseous, wanted to sleep all the time even when I had to go to school, etc. I kept losing my balance and control over my body. I remember falling a bunch of times, and I was outrageously dizzy. I made 289,482 complaints to my mother, to my aunt, to the doctor, and a bunch of other family members who didn't really care either, so there was no way for me to not take the drug. My mother was forcing me to, and I was 16 at the time. I ended up dropping out of school for a year because I was falling asleep during class constantly, and the teachers thought that I was, these are their words, in a document's transcript, heavily drugged. And I pretty much was, but since everyone at school hated me anyways, they started spreading rumors about having seen me do coke and heroin and getting drunk, which has never happened. So when the teachers heard, they voted to kick me out of school. My mother obviously did not defend me. My abusive stepfather sure as hell wouldn't have defended me either, and my biological father is dead, so I ended up spending the next six months at home, mainly sleeping, some days all day long, doing nothing and feeling super dissociated and numb. I don't remember most of the things I've been doing either. There are a lot of gaps in my memory, but I'm not particularly worried about that because my mother used to isolate me and keep me home all the time. I do remember that my goal was to eat as little as possible, and that I did everything in my power to remain eating very low calorie though, and I did. As terribly hard as it was for me to think logically, I genuinely tried to understand why I was rapidly gaining weight despite eating so little because I was sure that I was eating around 600 calories a day. I didn't even have to count them. People that deal with anorexia are pros at religiously maintaining some kind of a routine, not eating foods and portions that exceed an X amount of calories. I still am aware of how much calories I eat a day, despite the fact that I've not even tried counting them on purpose anymore. 
I was eating two to three apples a day, 200 to 300 calories, a palm-sized piece of skinless chicken breast, 150 to 250 calories, and something very low calorie for dinner, lettuce with a tablespoon of olive oil or 50 calorie diet pudding. I was super detached and couldn't think properly most of the time, but I still fought with all of my energy, or the lack thereof, to strictly follow that diet because I knew that I was drugged as hell and that if I ended up gaining a lot of weight, I'd probably kill myself after I got off of it. I had been diagnosed with depression and BDD by a psychologist prior to becoming anorexic, and I was feeling suicidal often before the drug. I knew for a fact that I'd rather die than gain weight. One might assume that it was these issues, suicidal thoughts, depression, anorexia, BDD, that made the psychiatrist believe that I should be medicated with something as terrible as risperidone, but he didn't know any of it, excluding the obvious eating disorder. He didn't ask me any questions other than the, why the hell aren't you eating, before prescribing me the drug, and none of my family members knew about my other mental health problems either, so no one could have possibly told him anything about these things beforehand. Even if they had, which is impossible because they didn't know, isn't it his job to do a proper and careful evaluation? And at the end of the day, growing up, I was sexually assaulted more times than I can count. I had grown so accustomed to it that at one point, I had completely stopped realizing that it isn't okay for people to be groping me, and etc. My mother is the most narcissistic person I have ever met. She has always abused me physically and emotionally, and keeps blatantly denying it. In front of everyone else, she always used to act like the best parent in the world, but the minute she stepped through the door at home, she'd be screaming at me and throwing stuff at me. My stepfather is also a misogynistic, abusive idiot. My mom allowed him to hit me all the time. He would beat me up if I were to paint my nails, for example, because in his opinion, it was slutty and constantly said things like, you look like a prostitute with this skirt, etc., which led me to not being able to tell him or my mother about the sexual assault I've been dealing with, and it made me blame myself for these terrible situations for the longest time. My dad was shot at home when I was six, and no one told me about it. Luckily, I was at my grandparents' house at the time. I literally found out about it through the news, and didn't even tell my mom because I, yes, six-year-old me, didn't want to make her feel uncomfortable and wonder what to tell me. So when she found out through someone else that I had found out, she never even brought it up or my dad ever again, up until I became 10 years old. And no, she didn't just bring it up. She simply started using, you're exactly like your idiot father, as an insult out of nowhere. I mean, the psychiatrist could have asked so many questions that would have directly led him to the explanation behind my obvious sickness and other psychological problems that he didn't even know about, but he couldn't bother doing his job properly. And I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but when your mental health issues are directly caused by or related to your environment, why would you even prescribe a drug in the first place? Even if it were to help me, which it didn't. I didn't have psychosis-related problems beforehand, and all this medicine did was make me fat and ruin my life. Wouldn't I go back to square one after I eventually stopped taking the drug? And yes, my situation was critical, but I was already willing to be tube-fed. I had already agreed on going to the private hospital that next day and start visiting a psychologist, although I was sure I'd relapse again after I got home. So why would he give risperidone to me, and why an antipsychotic? Before you ask, 
No, I didn't come across as obviously troubled and obnoxious as I'm being right now in this post in front of him. I just gave him a bland, I don't know, answer to his, why aren't you eating? But I made sure to not appear too disoriented or depressed, and if you were to ask me whether I was willing to recover, whether I'd do something about my situation, I would have said that I will for the sake of not having to take any drugs. The fact that he didn't even ask me that, or anything really, is still baffling to me. Anyways, back to the side effects. My stupid mother surprisingly eventually started fighting with my psychiatrist, like she ends up doing with everyone else, because we had to visit him since she had been talking to him about me complaining about the horrific side effects of the drug, and his brilliant idea was to increase my dosage, but he said that he should see me in order to decide first. Not only that she kept canceling, I never ended up seeing him after I first met him, but she eventually stopped replying to his emails too, I remember this only because she was complaining about it every single day for months in a row. And all of a sudden she was like, Ugh, this idiot keeps telling me that we can't continue the treatment if we don't visit him, so I'm just not going to give it to you anymore. And yes, you guessed it, she made me quit cold turkey. I had been taking it for 6-7 to seven months. I really don't know who the hell lied about Risperidone not being addictive, because the withdrawal phase was very real and horrific. I was sweating, my body was shaking, I had emotional breakdowns 24-7, I felt sick and overall incredibly suicidal. Now, I do realize that I shouldn't have stopped using it so abruptly and that I could have potentially passed out, but I genuinely didn't have any say in it. I even thought that I was going to actually die at one point, around two weeks after I stopped it. My heart felt like it was going to explode and I couldn't breathe properly. I don't know what actually happened. It could have been a panic or anxiety attack that was caused by the withdrawal effects too, but it was scary. And I told my parents that I literally feel like I'm going to pass out and that I need to go to the hospital, but my mother ignored me and my stepfather just laughed in my face, so I wouldn't know what actually happened to me. I did some research about antipsychotics withdrawal effect and long-term side effects, and companies and psychiatrists deny anything like that, but it seems like their explanation always is based on the fact that theoretically it isn't proven that antipsychotics could be addictive or may have some permanent or very long-lasting side effects, but I found zero proof that the opposite is true either. The fact that these companies prescribe drugs that are so strong without having done medical research about potential brain damage, the long-term side effects that may occur years after a person gets off the drug, etc., seems completely diabolical. And no, I don't mean the terrible side effects that I experienced the first two to three weeks which are very obviously caused by me abruptly stopping. It's been two years now and I still feel zombified. I've never had the luxury to be able to sit down, focus on something, and properly study because of my mother's constant screaming at me and blaming me for everything out of nowhere. But fortunately, I used to have an incredible memory. I would go to school and barely pay any attention to what the teacher's discussing and having memorized everything that we discussed in the class. If we didn't cover something during the school, I'd just open my books, read what I had to learn once or twice, write down two to three sentences that include the most important part of what I have to learn, and I'd show up at school the next day having learned everything perfectly. 
It isn't because what we were studying was easy. There were some very intelligent students who struggle with learning everything on time because the Bulgarian school system really is terrible. And in most cases, they never ended up getting a six, our equivalent of an A letter grade, even though some of them spent all their free time attending private lessons. I also changed many schools. It was always the same thing. The only thing that used to give me confidence was my intelligence. It actually took a while for me to see it as a good thing too, because looking back at it now, I kind of felt like a fraud and undeserving of always having perfect grades, etc. Because I wasn't putting any effort in it, and others who actually did rarely ever got the grade they wanted. And I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal. I'm being completely honest when I say that the only reason why I hadn't committed suicide is because I've always been very empathetic and caring for other people. A lot of my depression was actually rooted in not only my issues, I genuinely just feel sad when I think about how many terrible things happen to children and people who haven't done anything wrong in third world countries for example, which made me feel even shittier because it made me realize that I was still very comparatively lucky, but instead of it making me feel better and more humble, it made me even more depressed because I was mad at myself for being depressed. At the end of the day, I address the fact that I don't live in a country where people are being massacred. I have access to clean water, food, a nice place to stay. I can get all the education in the world and use my overwhelmingly overly analytical brain that won't shut up to make some kind of a change and help the ones who don't have a voice, who would do anything in the world to place themselves in my position. But guess what? Risperidone completely fucked my brain up. It's very hard to explain it. I have this constant brain fog that never gets away. It's kind of flu-like, except it's also messing up with my thought process a lot too, and directly affecting my capability to process information. I still manage to think very logically. I still analyze situations and think deeply about things, but it's so much harder. It's kind of like, not that I feel like I cannot do it anymore at all. It's a bit of a barrier feeling, but you can recognize said barrier, that there's something that's preventing you from saying or thinking about what you want to do or say easily, and you need to push through harder, which is exactly what I was feeling like while I was taking the drug. I don't memorize things as easily anymore. I still study relatively quickly, but there's a huge difference that bothers me a lot. When I started seeing the effects of the antipsychotic wearing off, despite all the terrible side effects, I was kind of looking forward to the future and decided to keep on going because I just wanted to get over all of this and finally regain my normal state of mind. But for around a year, I've been feeling the same way. There's literally zero progress. The brain fry effect is still there. It's not prominent enough to the point where I don't know what the hell I'm doing or I cannot think properly, but there is such a huge difference between my usual self and what's left of me. And since the minimal amount of self-confidence that I had was solely based on my intelligence, I've been feeling outrageously lost. Words cannot describe how hard it was for me to find one thing that I didn't completely hate about myself, given how much I despised and still despise myself as a whole. I had finally found it. It literally saved me from that perspective, only for an idiot to prescribe a medicine that wasn't even suitable for me to begin with and take it away from me. Now, don't get me wrong, I know that antipsychotics help some people with schizophrenia and I'm glad that they do, but they should only be prescribed to people who really need something to help them with their psychosis and everyone should be told about the side effects, possible long-term damage, and most importantly, these things need to be researched in the first place. 
It's easy to see why they haven't been. After all, this is a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's hard for people who are literally considered as clinically crazy to prove that these drugs have messed them up. But the fact that I mentally felt more whole and my cognitive functions were overall working better when I was an actual starving skeleton is crazy. And no, this isn't some kind of a projection or delusion, because I do admit that my weight being so low made me feel miserable and physically sick. I mean, I needed to carry around pillows to put under my bony ass in the car or at the sofa, or lack thereof, so that I don't get bruised because of how prominently my bones were sticking out for fuck's sake. And I had hair all over my body, my breath was terrible, my cheeks were sunken in, my hair almost completely fell out. My nails were breaking and my nail beds were falling out, yes literally. I felt like I was going to pass out or die anytime soon, and I was so cold I had to wear 5 layers of shirts and pants during the summer, the hypothermia. And while I felt weak and unhealthy, I was still me on the inside, I don't feel like that anymore. I may be healthy on the outside, yes all my blood tests are perfect etc, but the risperidone almost completely dehumanized me. I feel like my personality was strapped out of me. I was depressed before too, and I was in a very critical physical condition, but I still had some moments where I could enjoy myself for a while, even if it was only for 5 minutes. Now I just either feel outrageously numb, zombie-like, foggy, and empty all the time, or simply depressed. And the fact that I feel like I lack the ability to feel any kind of an enjoyment or happiness in itself is what makes me also even more depressed, because I want to break through it. But I've come to the conclusion that it doesn't fully depend on me anymore, and I'm trying to make my peace with it. I just realized that I've only went out to meet someone four times for these past two years. I've never really been outgoing anyways, because I've always been shy and very introverted, but I still used to enjoy meeting people sometimes. And I remembered that at least prior to the Risperidone, I felt motivated enough to rebel against my crazy witch of a mother and find creative ways to sneak out, so that I could have fun for like half an hour. Now, there's not even any of that left. Even things as simple as playing music or eating chocolate don't bring me any kind of minimal temporary satisfaction anymore. I have completely lost my sense of humor and I can only use what's left of my creativity only when I get hysterically sad enough that I feel the need to express it in a more healthy way, like singing or drawing, instead of doing something self-destructive. I feel outrageously depersonalized, and no, I'm not recovered from my food restrictions and terrible body image, I actually feel even uglier. I don't want to even begin describing what an agony I was in when I got off the Risperidone and realized how much weight it had made me gain. When I got off of it, I had gained around 44 pounds or 20 kilograms, and I've never been that heavy to begin with. And for someone who's dealing with anorexia, gaining as little as 0.5 kilograms feels like the end of the world. Combined with body dysmorphia, it's unbelievably hard to deal with, and as I mentioned, I was still eating super low calorie. I wasn't told that I'll gain weight either, and yes, Risperidone does make you gain weight even if there are no diet and or exercise changes because it messes up some of your hormones and most importantly, fucks up your cortisol and blood sugar levels. Tons of people have actually gotten diabetes from Risperidone. I spent probably a year running away from the mirror and crying every single time I got reminded of the fact that I had gained so much weight thanks to a drug that only worsened everything that I was dealing with and caused me a bunch of other horrendous problems. So yeah, just let that sink in. I honestly have no idea how I managed to find the willpower to not go batshit crazy this time. 
I've lost about 8 kilograms or 17 pounds and am maintaining them now while actually eating normally. I've always been naturally thin, but that in itself is so terribly hard for me. I'm technically still underweight, but drastic weight gain of any kind is the safest way to make someone from an eating disorder jump off a cliff or immediately relapse and die from starvation in the meantime out of immense paranoia that they're gonna gain all of that weight unexpectedly out of nowhere again. Right now, I just don't look at myself. I feel like the ugliest thing in the world, and regardless of how many compliments I receive, it doesn't matter because I don't feel pretty. Now that the drug has changed my state of mind so drastically too, I find it so stupidly hard to hold on to what's left of me. Also, there are other things that I didn't have problems with prior to taking the Risperidone. I have a harder time reacting to social cues. I sometimes cannot word my thoughts at all, like I actually cannot form sentences properly. I have also become incredibly nihilistic and have completely lost my sense of self and my purpose. I'll have to graduate at 20 and I've lost all my chances of going to an Ivy League college or Oxford or Cambridge if I were to study in the UK, which had been a goal of mine for so many years now and I could have easily done that if the Risperidone had not messed me up so much or ruined my academic career too. I endured so much abuse at home. I found it so hard to keep on going and work hard on myself, my abilities, and my knowledge for such a long time only for all of it to get wasted over an incorrectly prescribed drug. Oh, and I almost forgot, math became unbelievably hard for me, and beforehand I actually had advanced math classes and I perfectly learned all of what you need to learn up until 12th grade. And here I am in 11th grade, genuinely struggling with basic problems and exercises that were unbelievably easy to solve for me. I sometimes start reading a normal sentence out of a book and cannot understand what I am reading unless I read it over and over again three times. This is something that I've also never had an issue with. And it's been two years since I stopped using Risperidone and these side effects aren't going away. I have no idea what to do with my future and honestly, I don't want to do anything at all. How am I supposed to go to a therapist and explain what my problems are? Three school counselors already have given me, apart from BDD, anorexia, and depression, three completely different diagnoses. One said that I'm probably schizoid, the other one said that I probably have a high-functioning Asperger's, and the third one thinks that I am bipolar, second type. I don't even know what these things have in common, but if they are contradictory, I won't be surprised because what I'm experiencing doesn't make any sense and is literally the definition of abnormal. Honestly, I don't know anymore. How am I supposed to distinguish traits that were caused by the Risperidone and still haven't gotten away between traits that have occurred due to one of these diagnoses? Surprise, there is no way. Because for whatever reason, Risperidone's long-term side effects haven't even been studied. I do nothing but stay and read at home, wasting away most of my days. Sometimes either feeling nothing, sometimes being severely depressed, and sometimes both. This is an example to why you shouldn't mix and binge certain drugs. This was a while ago, but I remember most of it. One day, me and my friend, who is also my neighbor, decided to take DPH. I took 600 milligrams and he took less than me, I think 500. However, my tolerance was higher than his. I still think I gave him too much though. 
Mind you, I've also experimented with smoking nutmeg earlier in the day, had caffeine in form of tea, smoked weed with nicotine, and I think I had some DXM. I also had DXM plus DPH the day before. I don't remember how much, but it must have been a pretty high dose because of my tolerance. I don't remember if my friend had any the day before. I think he did too. I was actually planning to take 1000 milligrams of DPH, but because I smoked weed, I thought I would lower it to 600 milligrams. This was still way too much. When the DPH kicked in for my friend, he said he was hearing voices and I had to convince him that they weren't real. He was talking about seeing graffiti on the wall out the window, and I also had to convince him that there is no graffiti, but he wouldn't believe me. He was convinced that it was there outside. This was funny to me at the time. I wasn't really tripping at all myself, and because of this, I was about to make the worst mistake of my life. I get a can of beer for myself and my friend. Thank God that my friend didn't end up finishing that can of beer and didn't end up having psychosis like me. Never mix alcohol with DPH, especially if you've already done a delirium the day before and if you're on a stimulant. This has given me psychosis twice before, but why the fuck do I not learn my lesson? Because of the DPH and DXM already in my system from the day before, instead of tripping, I just black out. Apparently my friend said the drug made him feel very angry, so he wanted to be alone. He kicked me out and I went to my own room. I don't remember leaving his room, but I do remember wandering around trying to make tea or something. Then, for some reason, I fucking went outside in my slippers with no shirt on and just started jogging. I have no idea why or where. I was mindlessly jogging in slippers like a drugged up lunatic, but eventually the slippers were falling off and getting in the way, so I left them behind. I proceeded to jog barefooted. I actually only moved into the area a few days ago, so I was in a completely new territory and had no idea where I was or where I was going, but I kept on jogging. I ended up being lost in some street, then I started hearing voices. I don't remember how the voices sounded, but they convinced me that there was a bounty on my head of 10,000 euros for some reason, and that Irish travelers were coming after me. If you're from the UK, you'd know that Irish travelers are not people you want to run into. I started panicking, so I started climbing and jumping over people's fences to try and lose them. Now my feet are bleeding at this point from running so much on concrete, but I don't seem to care or feel any pain. I remember running past a couple of guys who were talking to each other, and when I ran past them, I shout, PLEASE DON'T SHOOT ME! They looked at me completely confused and speechless. I also remember a guy slowing down in a car and started talking to me as I was running, asking me if I was alright. I just casually said I'm fine and carried on jogging. Eventually I hallucinated that one of the houses were my parents' house. I knocked and an old man came out. I told him to call the police because I'm being hunted. The old man was extremely confused, but he did proceed to call the police, but it took him so long to do it that I started thinking he was part of the group who want to catch me and he was stalling on purpose, so I ditched the old man and carry on running. I started running out of the street and into the countryside. I remember climbing up a tree to try and hide from the voices. Then the voices told me that while I was up the tree, they planted landmines on the ground. I somehow believed this, but I knew I had to get away as the voices found me. I jump out of the tree and carry on running with the fear of being blown up by the landmines. I must have been running for hours now, almost non-stop, with no water whatsoever on a hot sunny day. I must have also been extremely dehydrated from being on 600 milligrams of DPH, although at that point I don't think I even knew I was on drugs. I remember running past a construction site and through all sorts of thorny bushes. 
I ended up running through a cabbage field and I think a bunch of actual Irish travelers came out and started shouting at me, asking me what the fuck I was doing. I assume it was their cabbage field. It's a good thing we were separated by a ditch and they couldn't easily reach me. I think I told them something about tea and they carried on shouting at me ignoring what I had to say. Eventually they start chasing after me and in order to get away I dived right into a field of stingy nettles, barefoot and with no shirt on. I remember one of my bleeding legs falling knee deep into a pond of some sort. I managed to get away from the travelers and ended up being near a road. The police finally found me. They asked me if I had anything in my pockets and for some reason I told them I had chili extract in them. They immediately handcuffed me in an extremely uncomfortable way and eventually I get thrown into the ambulance and taken into the hospital in another city with no shoes, no shirt, no wallet, no keys, and no phone. I had a dry mouth on my way to and in the hospital, but no hallucinations. I was no longer hearing voices either. The doctor told me I was able to leave at the end of the day, but said they would take me home if I stayed. At least, I think they told me that, because eventually this wasn't the case. Also, the cops said they were trying to find me for hours before they eventually caught me. I must have been running for two to three hours, maybe more. I decided to stay in the hospital. I was hooked up to IVs and they told me that my feet lost 3-4 to four layers of skin from jogging. If I tried standing barefoot on the floor with them, I would be in excruciating pain. I don't even understand how I didn't feel that pain before. I ended up having a lot of cuts and splinters and my body and feet were in stinging pain from the stinging nettles. The next day, one of the nurses told me I had rhabdomyolysis from running for such a long time with no fluids. Apparently it's a deadly medical condition, but I didn't believe that this is where my story would end, so I wasn't that worried. I think they were giving me potassium supplements for it. After about three days of being treated in there, I was feeling better and was told I can go home, but they said they wouldn't take me. I had to somehow find my own way there. This really pissed me off as I thought they told me they would take me. I was in a different city and didn't really have any way of getting home. My parents lived too far to want to come and pick me up, so I told the hospital I'm going to sue them if they don't take me home, because I didn't ask to have been taken there. And they expect me to rely on someone else to take me home? What if I don't have anyone else? I could barely walk. They eventually did end up driving me back. After this ordeal, it hurt for me to walk for about a month. Going up and down the stairs sucked, and some kid in the shop recognized me and was asking me, Hey, you that guy that was jogging? I pretended not to know what he was talking about and felt extremely embarrassed afterwards. I should have just laughed it off, really. Well, that's my story. It has been the worst trip and day of my life. I do wonder what would have happened if I took a whole gram of DPH like I originally planned. I hope to never have psychosis for the fourth time. It is hell, filled with paranoid delusional hallucinations.